Hello, welcome to the today's and tonight's event for wherever you are. We we are having, as you have already listened to, talk about several things. It's it's going to be really interesting because we have very special guests. We're going to talk about Mr. FPGA, of course, MP32Pi, MIDI, MIDI, and PC gaming in general for the DOS era. So tonight. Uh, I have the pleasure to be joined by Topefish and uh, by Flamespit, who are uh, two very talented individuals that have done a lot of work. We'll talk about their work as, as we go, but Topefish has been working on MT32Pi amongst several other things that I'll be asking him about. And uh, Flamespit uh, has been working on the Mr. AO486 uh, Top 300 DOS Game Pack. So how are you guys tonight? Good evening. Uh, can you hear me okay? Sounds good, Dopefish. How about me? Yeah, likewise. You sound great. I guess that's how the audience knows that it was a genuine MT32 that you actually had to do uh, some, some switching over. Yeah, yeah, I had to because uh, I could have used a mixer, but I didn't want to. I wanted to just like patch it straight to the stream instead of uh, using a mixer that could change uh, the, the audio signature. So how are you doing, guys? It's, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Doing great. It's a good Friday. Um, I'm. It's way earlier for me, so 8 p.m. start. <laughs> I didn't realize that we were going to start so late for other people. So I'm glad people are joining and and listening in. Thank you for for listening. If you're somewhere else in the world, yeah, it's pretty late for you, uh, right, Dopefish? Yes, it's uh, it's about 2 a.m. here, um, but that's that's okay for me. I'm pretty nocturnal anyway, so. Uh, so no problem on my behalf. So, but uh, yeah, thank thank you. Likewise, thank you for inviting me onto this. This is fantastic. Uh, you did a great job with the last uh, stage event. I was listening to that one. Um, oh, thanks. So, so it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. No, it's, it's really my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. And uh, we're going to talk about your projects. But first, uh, I'd like uh, to introduce you to the audience and ask you first about what got you into games? Uh, what what got you into games, Dopefish? Oh, games. So I guess um, I started out with the the Commodore Amiga, uh, the five hundred to be specific, uh, from quite a young age. So uh, my family got an Amiga five hundred in the early nineties, and I used to actually watch my dad play Another World on the Amiga five hundred. So if you know wow. that game, awesome. um, I used to be totally freaked out by that because uh, it had some pretty uh sort of graphic animations which were which were awesome but back then i was terrified by them um but uh, i i slowly sort of got into the amiga games library i used to play things like james pond robocard and uh, all the cool platformers used to have on the amiga terrican 2 um and so i'm a huge fan of the amiga that's that's my my favorite machine uh but yeah, sixty-eight thousand for the win, man. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's really interesting. Another world. Uh, it's it's an amazing game. It was also a very fond memory for me. I also played it in, in Amiga and then on in, on DOS. And uh, what about you, Flintspeed? What what got you into games? Yeah, so I'm in my mid forties. Most people have seen me on YouTube, so they know they know what I look like. I started my kind of computer career at a young age messing with a ti 994a that was my first machine and 
games like Parsec and, um, you know, coding in whatever was in the latest magazine at the time and saving that down to cassette. And then I, I moved on to consoles. And so that was like the NES era. And then TurboGrafx-16 is one of my favorites of all time. Um, and then from there, I took a different path. I went PC. So I went DOS. Um, I got my first 386 SX, you know, 20 megahertz machine in the like probably 89. I think I was like 12, 11, 12. Um, and then I spent all my time playing, you know, DOS games. So it was um, anywhere from, you know, the first King's Quest, Space Quest. Um, and then, of course, into like Wolfenstein 3D, Falcon 3.0, Stunt Driver. Those are the ones that I played the most which are, of course, in my pack. Um, but then I veered off into BBSs. So um, I spent a lot of time um, in BBS world. So games like Legends of the Red Dragon and Baron Realms Elite, um, you know, spent every waking hour playing those kind of games. So and then just from there on. Wow. Nice. So basically, you, you both got your you started in, in, in this uh, area of gaming, right? Where uh, we were talking about how diff different it was from from console gaming and also from uh, mainly what the experience that even PC gamers get today. Uh, what can you tell us about how it was uh, growing up in an era that was so different uh, regarding this, uh, Dopefish? I think uh, the biggest thing for, for me was that um, most of the games that I had uh, were probably... Uh, let's say not a hundred percent legit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so like as as pretty much any Amiga owner um, can probably confirm, most of my my disc boxes were full of handwritten labeled floppy disks, right? And so a lot of the the Amiga um, gaming came from going around friends' houses and copying uh, copying different games, right? So um, we had no internet back then, obviously. And mm -hmm. there was no way to get software for the Amiga other than to buy magazines with the floppy disks literally stuck onto the front of them, mm -hmm. or to um, you know maybe maybe you'd have that one friend who had rich parents who had like a BBS connection or something and they were downloading stuff, but uh, like it was that was the main way we got software. So um, there was a lot of like. I don't know how to say it really, sort of community spirit around the Amiga, um, like the, the swapping communities and things like that. And there was a lot of, um, we had these things in the Amiga magazines uh, where there would be advertisements for public domain software and there'd be huge lists with tiny, tiny fonts uh, with uh, like names of software that you could buy for like a pound each. Right, and and you just you you'd send a check off to this company, and maybe a few weeks later you'd you'd get these random discs in the post, um, and you had no idea what was going to be on them, and that was I, I kind of missed that in a lot of ways. It's quite fun to go through all the like internet archives where people have managed to archive these these disc images and 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 relive that, because now it's so easy to just grab stuff from Steam and 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 and, and play it like ten minutes later, right? Yeah, I was jealous of the Amiga magazines because of that disc that was in there. You know, we didn't necessarily have the same 
um, advantage on the DOS side of things. You didn't you didn't have that once a month disc that was coming in. Um, for me, it was BBSs, right? That was, I, I guess it started a little bit before that because my brother is much older than me. And so he was in college and that's when, you know, the five and a quarter inch floppies were being passed around and, you know, those eighties games that you just couldn't, you couldn't get either you're buying it at the, at the store, but again, just like dope fish, kind of a under, underground community um, that, that, you know, when people start finding out about, um, I don't know, it felt exclusive back then. Uh, it's funny, a bit like the Mr. Community now, the way that we share and it's a, it's a pretty tight knit group and, you know, it, it gets exposure, but, but like back in, in the DOS days, you know, you were, there wasn't, there weren't very many people that, that were doing that. Um, and especially being connected. So as soon as the BBS started, that's when, you know, you, you had a very tight knit community and that's when sharing definitely, um, just like dope fish, lots of floppies and backups and hundreds of, of, um, discs and figuring out how to archive all that. I had a different problem cause I hosted a BBS as well. So how do you make all that available for people way back when? So fun though. Yeah, it was a, a very, very different experience, but also it was very different in terms of uh, what we got when we bought a computer, right? You could, uh, you got the instructions for how to repair it and also how to code for it. And even the SDKs, if you could call them that, uh, you, you have uh, programming languages bundled with the computer, right? Yeah, I mean, if you think about just the DOS books that come, you know, with with if you bought DOS 3.1, 5.0, I mean, you got everything imaginable, you know, telling you every command and and um, everything available to you. You know, back then when I got my first PC, again, I talked about that 386SX, you sit it down, it doesn't have an OS on it, you install the OS and it drops you to an A prompt or a C prompt, you know, and you got nothing. It's like, you know, the first thing you type is help. And luckily there was, there was help there and you had to figure it out, which is kind of how I ended up here. Um, spending all it, that time. It there. sounds strange how, how today you, you just think just search for a web page or a YouTube video even, right? Right. Yeah. And impossible, um, back then. How, how did you get into learning this stuff? Uh, though fish. Um, as in like the programming side or? Yeah, well, kind of using it. How, how do you even remember how you learned how to load games? Uh, because I, I know Amiga's different, but as a Commodore 64, or, uh, you had to learn something, right? And maybe for some um, Amiga versions, you had to learn a bit of the internals to, to make them, the stuff run, right? Yeah, there was a little bit of that, um, but I think for the majority of Amiga software, especially the stuff that was aimed at just the plain vanilla Amiga 500 mm -hmm. or 1200, most of the software, would you would just put the disk in and turn it on. Like It would boot straight up and you wouldn't have to type a single thing. You, yeah. It would boot straight from the disk. Um, if you had like... But but I did I did have to learn how to work around problems because um, later on when I upgraded to the twelve hundred, a lot of Amiga five hundred stuff stopped working uh, because the thing with Amiga games is I think a lot of programmers back then were transitioning from the eight bit era to the sixteen bit era and they were very used to programming in a way that sort of hit the hardware directly and made a lot of assumptions about how the machine worked. 
So as soon as yes. they got given this Amiga, where the specifications could kind of change depending on what model you went for, because you, you know you started with the 500 and then you you went up to the 1200 with the 020 and more RAM and everything, then all those assumptions stopped applying, right? And and the software broke. So I used to have to do a lot of um, like. Uh, downgrade like you used to get these downgrading tools i guess you might have had that in in, in the dos days as well to turn your 486 into something a bit mm. slower but we had to yeah, do hit the button similar <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we had a <laughs> turbo button that was completely uh it, it was con counterintuitive at the at best yeah right? turbo slower right <laughs> <laughs> yeah because uh, you had games that were simply ran too fast based on the clocks right exactly yeah you had these um you had these games that were programmed using cpu delays which obviously nowadays we know that's that's a that's not a good thing to do um but back then yeah. it was kind of it was just accepted that's how you did it that's how it was always done um and and yeah it caused problems but luckily we've got all sorts of tools now to to work around them uh to work around these problems like whd load and uh, and and all sorts of things like that usually just end up killing all the features of the CPU if you've got a fast CPU. So if you've got like a, a 68040 or 60, if you're very lucky, um, you can you just turn all the caches off. And and if that doesn't work, then you've got to start patching things. But uh, that gets a lot of stuff working if you turn the caches off, if I remember right. Yeah. And, and what about you, Flint? How How do you remember learning this stuff? Was, was it somebody else that taught you? you? You figured it out by yourself? Yeah, some of it. So, I mean, if you can't tell, I get attached to things. So I yeah. have a, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll, I'll grab, grab a hold of something and then I'm invested in it. It's my passion and it's what I spend, you know, a majority of my time doing. And so even way back then, you know, number one, having the opportunity to have my own, you know, think about, being a teenager um, back in, you know, the 80s, late 80s, and um, having access to a full DOS machine, 386, you know, my my father was in IT, and um, he enabled me um, a bit, so he was mm. like an old school mainframe developer, you know, still co codes in COBOL, and so he taught me the ropes, you know, at least how to move around the, the OS, but also basically said, here you go, go figure it out. And of course that was in my bedroom. So just like kids these days, you know, you give them a PC in their, in their room and they're playing video games all day. Mine was learning every single little thing about DOS and, and what mm -hmm. I could do with it. And then of course, um, when I figured out you could dial out and then it was, you know, uh, I, I spent all my waking hours <laughs> doing that, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it just fiddling with it and, you know, 12 hour sessions sitting behind the, the keyboard, banging away at something, trying to figure it out and, and ultimately growing. Um, and again, I, I, I don't play a whole lot of games. I play games, but you know, I get a lot of my enjoyment out of figuring out things that not a whole lot of people have done. So um, even back then, you know, when I felt like, oh, I'm, there's maybe, you know, 
it felt like there were 300 people in the world that were doing what we were doing back then. So um, that's the fun part for me. Yeah, that that was uh, an amazing era. In in some ways, feels so innocent, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I didn't really even think about the piracy angle back then. It, it <laughs> I, I, you know, small town, you know, think, um, you know, uh, middle middle America, very small town, you know, ten thousand people. You're just not you're not thinking about that. But of course, it was pretty rampant back then. It really was. Yeah. And uh, we we can we have a lot of ground to cover, and I don't want to rush things. But uh, how did you guys find about mystery? Ooh, um, shall, shall I go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I was I was put onto it through uh, through MT thirty two Pi. Actually, I'd um, I'd heard of the Minimig project back all the way back when it was, was it was its own board um, because I mean I've talked about Amigo already so I, I've always sort of had my ear to the ground when it comes to developments in the Amiga community so I, I knew of Minimig um, and I'd kind of heard about Mist, but I, I didn't really pay much attention to them at the time because I was kind of you know I, I was just using my real hardware um, but I was vaguely aware of them. Um, but I wasn't aware of Mister until mm. I'd sort of done some stuff, like the, the beginnings of MT32Pi, and a few people on Twitter like saw me tweeting, and, and it blew up slightly, and, and I ended up in uh, Smoke Monsters Discord, and mm. I, I met some really cool people there, and... Um, and and yeah, they were asking me, "Have you heard of Mister? Like Mister's this 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 FPGA thing. You should look at this. It's got all these cores. It's got all these computers and everything." And I was just like, "Wow, okay." Um, and then then I started paying attention because I, I'm now in a situation where I can't really have all this random hardware all over the place. I, I haven't got a very big accommodation, so I, I know the feeling. I have to clean up daily. Yes. <laughs> So, uh, so the Mister is 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 a great solution for that, um, and yeah, and and now and now I'm very happy to own one. So, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to the people that that put me onto that, um, and and also got one for me uh, to 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 help me get MT32 Pi brought across to it. Yeah, the the it's an amazing community, really. For sure, yeah, yeah. And uh, how about you, uh, Flint? How did you find out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. It's a little bit of the same story, but a bit different. So I, um, I'm a collector. I'm a console collector, and and I have lots of consoles, and you know, trying to get them all out, get them connected, and you know, into the RGB mod community, and and RGB modding all my TVs so that I could get the right input signals, and you know, you get get into the YouTube loop of finding, you know, all of these different, you know, basically how can I get all my consoles connected at once so that I can play what I want to play and ended up in smoke monsters videos. So, um, okay. you know, his YouTube, uh, videos. And I think it was when he was, so I got my first mister in March of 2020. Um, and it was, I, I think I, I think it was when all of his um, I, I ran across all of his daily videos on each console and um, 
you know, I was going down the ODE route and trying to mod all my consoles for that. And then I was like, what's this Mr. Thing? This looks way better. And um, so, yeah, bought my first one and put it together and um, the rest is history. And then, you know, I definitely got attached when I when I got to see when Sorg and, and Robert were going back and forth on the AO486 code. Mm-hmm. Um, that was maybe a month or two there where they were working on the L2 and L1 cache. And um, the forum was on fire and Discord was on fire. And I, that's when you everybody got me hooked. So Yeah, it, it, it just, everything rolled from there, right? It's, it's been quite a ride. So you guys have talked a little bit uh, uh, tangentially about your projects. And um, now you you work on that uh, on that game pack that solves so many problems that has CDs, floppies, uh, curated list of multiple uh, top one hundred DOS uh, games. You have to verify each game for compatibility. Flag games that have uh, difficulties with memory managers and and all that things. Could you tell us uh, about that? Please? Yeah, it started. You know, again, with my background, I was like, we can do more with this. Um, and again, before the before the AO486 um, code changes that really brought it from a pretty slow, call it 386, you know, or maybe even 286 before all the cache stuff. Um, when when all those changes happened, it really just added stability. Number one, the stability increased exponentially. Um, number two, the speed brought it in again up to, you know, we were watching it creep up 486, you know, 25 megahertz, 33 megahertz, you know, getting close to kind of the 66 megahertz. Um, and that's that sweet spot of games for me personally. And so I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. we can, so I started with how I'm just going to, you know, I built an image, did full installs of kind of all the OSs messing with them. So I started with the OSs and it was like, okay, um, which, which OSs are the most compatible DOS five, DOS six, DOS six, two, two, you know, moving up all the way into, you know, windows 98 and the version of DOS that comes with that. Um, even OS two, I'm an OS two fan from way back in the day. So I spent probably too much time trying to get OS two working on the core. And then went back and was like, okay, how can I make DOS, all the DOS games that are available easier for people to digest? Because it's hard, right? When you talk about the different memory managers and what game can support what, and how can you make it a bit more plug and play? And so um, when I went down that path, it, we started with... Um, I started with a product called WBAT, and it's a scripting language that basically allows you to do front-end interfaces, like like text-based interfaces. Um, and I was building that manually, so I was going by each game, and I was like, okay, this is going to take 22 years <laughs> to complete. Um, so then talking with people on the Discord and, and um, just getting ideas went down the LaunchBox path. And so the LaunchBox for DOS um, had been released, and and available, but you quickly run into some limitations. Number one, you're still curating that entire list. Number two, it was, um, uh, you had a limit. There were 300 games, and I'm like, okay, I want more than 300 games. And so I I went down, there's a a collection out there called Total DOS Collection, and it's, you know, that's all about saving the history of exactly how the DOS game was, all the images, all the versions. 
But again, there was so much work to get that into a runnable state, like if you were to put a cartridge in a, in a console. And so then, of course, I stumbled upon... Um, actually, we were look, I was looking for, for um, products that, that index and have all the metadata and all of that. And there was the Metropolis launcher. And I think that's one of my first videos I did. And it was basically pulling in all of the, because you could, in Metropolis Launcher, you could pull in either Exodos or TotalDOS uh, collection, and then you could export. And it actually had TotalDOS Launcher, the open source product that we use today in the image, which is the front end. It had it built in, and it had created this nice index and this nice front end, and it pulled in all the metadata. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is way closer where we need it to be. And of course, you start running into some of the challenges with the core around memory, around you know some of the DPMI memory issues, and and then just DOS in general, how complex that is. And so that's when we converted over to the ExoDOS converter, and we worked a couple of months on that um, to get that all the code into that to where it could manipulate ExoDOS the way we need it in. Um, in AO46, and then I did the first, I think, um, the first packs I did were um, the date packs, so I think those were around October um, is when I when I did those, and then um, the, the next step, I was like, okay, can I get 7,000 games into a single interface in DOS and working in the core? Um, and when I say working in the core, does the interface come up and can you can you run through all the games? And we got there and and spent a lot of time making sure that every single game could actually all the metadata and everything could come over. And then of course you run into compatibility issues. And I thought that was gonna be easy, right? I remember talking to the Discord and saying, Oh, you know, I'm gonna get all seven thousand games in there and these are all gonna be playable. And then reality set in as you know, when I released that one and everybody was kind of messing with it, it was like, okay, this game doesn't work. This game doesn't work. I'm like, okay, none of this works. Mm. <laughs> like I've got to, I've got to start over. Um, and so that was when it's like, okay, can I, I need to pull this down to something manageable. And there's not 7,000 good DOS games. I'm sure Dopefish can say that about Amiga too. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so um, we pulled it down to 300 and I, and again, everybody jokes about you know oh this game is missing from the pack or or why did you pick these games and it's one of those things you can see all the process that I went through and all the thought I put into it and again that's probably months of work and then when it got to creating the top three hundred pack I spent five minutes on it um, Fredo can <laughs> can attest to this I literally went out did a Google search for um, underrated DOS games, top 100 underrated, top 100 DOS games, and I took like three different lists, combined them, took out the duplicates, pulled it down to 300, made sure it had some of my favorites in it, and then that's it. And we still have it today, you know, and I created that back in October. And then it was, and I, I streamed this, it was like, okay, I'm going to drink a bunch of coffee and I'm going to record all this. And really the recording was for me to go back and figure out what the hell I did with each game and just kind of sat there and cranked through it over a weekend. Like how do I, and the goal back then, this is interesting. If you go back and watch the stream, all I was trying to do was get 300 games working with sound blaster. 
So the top mm. 300 pack that's sitting there, even today, the intent was just, can I get Sound Blaster functioning with every one of these games in the list? Um, and so we can pause there because then we get into all the MIDI stuff and kind of how yeah. we got there. That's 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 the the, the kind of segue. Many people probably that uh, are listening to this haven't experimented with um, with the forty to six core, but uh, there's there's this huge barrier, uh, right? That you helped uh, to to remove or make it easier for for the average user because it's it's really difficult to understand everything that's under a DOS machine from the time. You needed to understand how high man, how how memory managers, how drivers, ports, uh, sound blaster, uh, ini files, config files, config C's, bats. You you had to learn quite a bit about around uh, the hardware because it was evolving uh, a lot, right? You had a lot of sound interfaces, sound boards like the sound blaster, but you also have this uh, transition era where only I I, I recall uh, getting like uh, seal fit for for DOS, right? Mm. And it included this uh, beautiful uh, manual that has uh, the MT32 advertised and the interface to connect that, and it was like one thousand dollars for one and one thousand dollars for the other. Who, who would play that, right? Yikes. But um, but the thing is, this this runs us into what is MIDI, Dopefish? MIDI. Oh, okay. Um, so M- MIDI stands for Monkey Island Digital Interface. <laughs> um, it does and- for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, sorry. It's it's Musical Instrument Digital Interface, um, and it's it's like a standard. It's a standard that came out in. Hang on, let me check my notes. Like uh, 1983, all yeah, the way back yeah. then. Um, and it's, it sort of defines both a hardware interface and a protocol for musical instruments to talk to each other. So the idea is like I, I could take any keyboard that has a MIDI port on it and any other MIDI compatible musical instrument and play it from a remote keyboard. So that's like a, a basic setup. Then when you start getting computers involved, um, then things really get interesting because then you can you can have the computer playing a whole orchestra of instruments all at once. And um, it was sort of, because it was the early 80s, it was developed around the kind of 8-bit uh, friendly protocol. So it does have its limitations, but the thing is, like the limitations weren't that bad. I mean, we only just got MIDI 2.0 last year, so it's been good yes. for like 34 years. <laughs> um, I think it's probably one of the better standards out there that we've had in the in the computing industry. Um, but yeah, it's it just defines a way for any musical instrument and computer to be able to talk to each other without any uh, without any like hassle, really. Um, you you can use it to to record yourself. You can use it to 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 do music production. You can use it just for playing video games. All sorts of purposes. You can even use MIDI for things that it was never meant for because it's so flexible. Like I, I know I know there's some systems that use MIDI as 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 a way of controlling lights. Like lights. In, uh, yeah. That yeah. Uh, so it's, it's not just me that's heard of that. Then you, you see. Yeah, so. of course. Yeah. 
um, it's it's very it's very useful. And uh, since since this was happening, the um, DOS gaming got this because you have the sound cards that sound cards usually had an FM chip, right? And it was not like in Japan where where people have experience with FM for I don't know six or five years before this happened into the personal computer computer area, but uh, we also got uh, MIDI ports on those uh, sound cards or interfaces like the 401 that, that communicated with any such device. And companies like like Roland started and uh, sold interfaces that were meant to be controlled by the computer and by musicians, of course. This, this evolved over time, right? Uh, what can you tell us about those early versions of... Um, of the MIDI standard on on computers before GM General MIDI and on what is that? Was was that to me or to to Flynn? Yeah, I can answer too. I, for me, it yeah, was, please please go, Flynn. You yeah. know, I, where it started for me, and I don't know if this is where it started in the industry, but it, uh, the combination of the Roland MT32 and the MPU 401 interface on a PC, right? Like. Um, and then of course, gaming companies like, you know, I, I would say probably Sierra is the one that everybody mm -hmm. knows and they feel like they were one of the first ones. Um, but you know, when you think about everything that Dopefish said, the other part of that is you can have a, you've got a musician controlling all of those interfaces using real instruments and synthesizers, and then they can digitally record it in data that is very, very small. And back then, you know, that was key, right? Getting that kind of music just was not, it just wasn't available to anybody. Um, even me back then, I had a Sound Blaster 1.0 and I thought it was amazing. And of course, the difference between that and, and, a, and a MIDI device is exponentially, you know, that much better. So for me, it was all about, again, that digital interface to the computer, and then the the MT32 being able to you know synthesize that and and play it out just like if the instrument was sitting there. So yeah, maybe we should introduce the audience to what does a MIDI device like this uh, synthesizers do because it's it's basically a specialized computer that has its own ROM, probably has some samples later on. But at first, it was uh, what what concerns us right now. MT32. You can probably tell us a lot about. Uh, LA uh, dopefish. Yeah, I, I can't. Um, I'm, I'm at risk of getting a lot of this wrong because I don't know that much of of like the the core internals of how the MT32 works. But um, that is, it, it is kind of special that synth because it it not only has um, PCM samples, so so sampled sound mm -hmm. stored in ROM, but it also has. Um, like waveform synthesis as well, and you can combine them. And that was one of its tricks. So uh, there's quite a few games that will create custom instruments um, by sending the MT32 special commands that, that you know, re basically reprogram the synthesizer to sound different than what it does with just the factory presets that it comes with. And so um, that's why when you play an MT32 specific game, it, it doesn't necessarily work very well, if at all, when you, you've got it connected to like a general MIDI device, a later generation device. So yeah, it's it's quite a quirky machine in its own right. And the, the thing about MIDI is that there's no 
um, there's no audio being transmitted with MIDI. It's all just about the controls and about the note data. So uh, that's one of the reasons why it's so efficient. You're literally just telling the machine what notes you want to be played by that machine. So the synthesizer is um is is listening to these commands and 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 executing them with a, a very small microcontroller uh like you say so it's 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 kind of like its own computer in its own right yeah and uh also from what i know it's it's kind of like an analog synthesizer as opposed to the samplers or rumplers or many are called uh later on right yeah, I believe so. So that that's what I was referring to with the um, with yeah. the, with the reprogrammable synth part. Um, I've uh, I've heard those being referred as patches, and uh, I understand they are transmitted via uh, by a SISEX commands that not not any uh, MIDI interface can transmit nowadays, right? Yeah. So every every MIDI interface is supposed to be able to transmit and mm-hmm. receive SISEX. Um, which, if if you don't know what that is, that's system. Ex- it's sort of a system exclusive. Um, system exclusive commands are variable length uh, data packets that can be sent to any synthesizer uh, and can go beyond the, the the core MIDI standards. So you can send a special MT32 specific message to the MT32, and it will do its own things. So these kinds of messages are usually written in the back of the manual, like we're referring to earlier with, with, mm-hmm. the, with the computers. Um, most MIDI devices will have a, a big section at the back of the manual with all the, spe- the special extra features that they have that you can program with sysx commands. And um, yeah, like most MIDI interfaces can, can handle that no problem, but you do have some of these really, really cheap MIDI interfaces that you mm-hmm. find on Amazon and eBay that mm-hmm. appear to work okay because if if you play just basic notes on them, everything seems fine. But the second you start to try sysx commands, which you'll run into very, very quickly if you play any MT32 game, because mm-hmm. they always do some setup at the beginning, um, then things are going to sound really weird because half of those commands won't have made it through the interface. So if if you're, I, I'm going to take this opportunity to to, to send a public service announcement. Mm-hmm. So like, if you're going to buy a USB MIDI interface, do not get that black one with the shiny silver cables coming out of it. It's the <laughs> same one every time, and it's about three dollars or something like that. Do not get that MIDI interface. It's terrible. You're going to have um, a bad time. You are going yeah. to regret it instantly. Um, there's there's going to be no Monkey Island at all if you get that. Um, <laughs> or like agreed, you might get a really horrible janky version of it at least. But um, yeah, go and get a UM one or something nice. Yeah, the Roland ones are very nice too. And uh, I recall another another brand that started with M that does work as well. I can't remember which one it was, but yeah, I ran into that issue as well because. Uh, Dune 2 or or Akumayo uh, Dracula Castlevania in X68000, they they need to have full control, right? And those, those simply didn't work because I was trying to record uh, what the X68000 sent and have my own MIDI files with CSX, and and that was I had I ended up using uh, a DOSBox and and an old an old computer and and old software to do that. <laughs> nice. 
Yeah, I think it's funny yes. about the MT32 because we had the MIDI standard, meaning the interface, but MT32 was like the instrument, um, you know, like what is it there? Like 120 something, uh, call it channels, right? Dope fish. And you were stuck with that. Whatever they said um, might not be like an example when the general MIDI standard came out where you knew what it was going to be when you sent a signal there, right? Two very different, you know, that's why it was not quite compatible later on. Yes. Yeah. It's as far as I understand it, you have like the MV32 mapping. It's, it's kind of where general MIDI went to because Roland was in the board standardizing that. Right. But they did make several changes. The, the first SC55, that's another uh, very common uh, synthesizer for, for MIDI. There's the first model that is not general MIDI and has several instruments in the wrong places for what general MIDI ended up being. And you have the MK2 version of that SC55 that does have the proper GM mappings. And many games work or, or were designed when, with one of those in mind, right? Yeah, and on the DOS yeah. side, I, I actually did a little research for this because I, I wanted to grab some stats. So on Moby Games, for General MIDI, there's 374 DOS titles that, that support General MIDI. There's 917 DOS games that support MT32. Um, wow. And then there's 127 games that support SC55. And then I, I see the okay. chat talking about the other platforms. When you get into the other devices, that that number goes down exponentially, right? I think the Atari has like 10 games. Macintosh has like 10 games. I don't know what Amiga. Amiga, Dopefish. Something like that, yeah. They're, they're all it's just like, ports of the Sierra games. Uh, like, it, it must be like between six and 10. I can't remember. And then the 68,000, the only one I ever hear anybody talk about, Castlevania. Um, there's, there's a bunch of them that are really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there are several uh, arcade ports. You get Gradius 2 that does support several soundtrack versions. You have the, the, the Yamaha uh, FM soundtrack mm. for the 2151 20, plus the 80 PCM chips. You have the MT, MT32 version that combines the, the Yamaha and the MT32. And then you have the SC55 version. So you can play with either of those or or even combined, because you could get the drums from the MT32 and FM synthesis combined with LA, LA synthesis. Right. Same does the Akumaja Dracula. You have several Capcom games, like Street Fighter 2 with uh, GM, uh, or, well, not GM, that, that doesn't have GM, that has SC55. But you have also, like, uh, Ghouls and Ghosts, Taimai Kaimura, does have uh, general MIDI support. So you have a whole bunch of games that uh, support that, and even games that combine uh, synthesis from several devices. I'm ready for my fully configured uh, pack for that, ready to go. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> oh, boy. You're, you're in for some work. <laughs> there's, there's already some work done on that uh, by, by several communities. Uh, it's not my time to talk about this, but... They, they are mainly cracks. I saw that you were working on, on dumps from the original games instead of the, the regular, or at least I saw that was part of the documentation from, from your project, or for Exodus at least. Yeah, 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 they're both. And both uh, 
yeah, and X68000 packs that are out there are usually fully cracked. There is no pristine clean dumps because they're very difficult to run on, on the real hardware. So uh, it depends on the protection from the floppies, right? So Yeah, that's the challenge with trying to go plug and play too because, um, boy, the DOS... Um, copyright protection is all over the place you know all, it was it was not standardized you know everybody had these printed out wheels or code pages that are that are in the book that you or go find this word on this you know on this page on this sentence and um trying to do that you know the biggest limitation i was actually going to do again back to the total dos collection which is a completely pristine version of that DOS game, right? Exactly the mm. way that it was on the floppy for that version. I mean, the copy protection is still there. And so what you run into is you need the ability to see that, like you need, you need the ability to see the manual. And so like if you're on Windows 10 and you're running Exodos or any of those and you have a graphical interface, you've got the PDF of the manual right there. Pretty easy to pull up and, and find that copy protection. But on Mr. You're, you're in you're in DOS, right? So um, that was one of the gives was, you know, on on a lot of the games, especially the top 300 pack, um, those are ready to go. They should play right out of the box. Of course, we run, we've been running, and as people test, we run into some of them, like Prince of Persia wasn't perfect, had to really dive into that one and figure out, you know, how that one really worked and and fix it. You know, a lot of those games, there's probably... 40 or so of those games that we had to go back and kind of revisit. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, again, the goal is sit down, keyboard and mouse, and just play like you would on a PC, you know, or if you're, yes. you know, if it supports joystick, use a controller. So yeah, that's, that's a lot of work because you, you need to figure out which is the proper correct source and, and validation on that is, is really difficult to find like flux dumps and, and, and figure out if those files are pristine. That's a lot of work, man. Yeah, but for me, it was uh, building on um, the work of others. People, you know, you take it. Somebody has taken a project to a certain point, and then okay, at where where can we go from there? And again, mm -hmm. using like Exodos as the base, a um, lot of work there. All the scripting, verifying games. That's like ten or twelve years of work that Exo had done. You know, he to talk about a passion. He spends all of his time working to make sure that that pack works correctly for the maximum amount of games that are available for DOS and, and for that era. And now Windows, he's got a 3.1 version that would be a lot of fun to get working on Mr. as well. Um, and speaking about that, how easy was it to configure every one of those for MIDI support? Yeah, so it's funny... Dopefish and I kind of stumbled into that to, you know, believe it or not. Um, I would say <laughs> yeah. 90% of the work was done with, um, you know, again, we started with the top 300 and then he and I started talking about what can we do with MT32Pi and um, how can we interface that. And when, I guess it was when we had MPU control was the first utility, right? And then now we have MT32Pi, which is a DOS program mm -hmm. that literally sends signals to the MT32 and can tell it whatever we want. Um, so prior to that, we were, you know, kind of going through what would that interface. And 
I did have the forethought. There were in the Exodos collection, it uses um, DOSBox. And so one of the functions of DOSBox is a utility. I think it's called mtconfig. And then you basically can tell it, okay, DOSBox, go, you're going you're gonna to be an MT32 or you're going to be an SC55. And Exodos mm-hmm. had already configured those to be able to switch the DOS games, their configs. So there's always an extra folder in every one of the DOS games. There's a, there's a well, Sound Blaster folder, there's an MT32 folder, and there's an SC55 folder. Those folders already have the do- that specific DOS game's config file and any other binary files that allow it to switch between those three sound platforms. So Sound Blaster, MT32, and, and Sound Canvas are the, are the three options. And what the batch shell scripts go in, they just literally go, when you, when you pull up that menu and it says, pick your sound, it goes and copies those files into the root of that game and then starts the game. And so, um, again, when I originally did that, it was just, okay, I'm just going to get Sound Blaster working. And then when Dopefish was, we were going back and forth on MT32, I was like, I think I'm almost there. And so, um, literally, I think it was over whiskey and gin and anything else that, and it was probably 2 a.m., he and I going back and (laughs) forth, usually. And um, we got the MT, we got MPU control working where we could control the Pi. And then um, we switched to the MT32, and I basically did a find and replace in the code. And and instead of telling DOSBox to do the change, um, all I do is tell the, you know, it was like three different changes, the Sound Blaster, the Sound Canvas, and the MT32, and we just flip the command. So the command literally just goes in and and changes it to... Um, tell the MT32 to switch, and then the game copies the files down for it to be MIDI instead of Sound Blaster, and it plays the game. I think there were a hundred. There's 147 games um, that have that ability in the top 300. So you can switch depending on if it's General MIDI, Sound Canvas, MT32, or Sound Blaster. Those all should work. Um, and all it's doing is I flip that DOSBox command and said, "Don't tell DOSBox." to switch the config, tell the MT32 Pi to switch the config, and it worked. Awesome. So so now that uh, Flinspit has already introduced a bit about what uh, MT32 Pi is, Dopefish, could you tell us what it is? Sure. So basically, M- MT32 Pi is um, a bare metal implementation of the Munt emulator. So Munt is the software we use to actually emulate the MT32, um, as well as Fluid Synth, which we're using as the sound font synthesizer, which gives you general MIDI, GS, XG, whatever the sound font can do, basically. It's it's a sound font um, implementation. And it it takes those, those synthesizers and it gives them a dedicated um, bare metal environment for them to run on. Um, on the Raspberry Pi. So normally you'd run these programs on a PC or or a Raspberry Pi on Linux, right? And you'd have to um, you'd have to either manually start them up and configure all your all of your sound interfaces. Um, if you're on Linux, trying to get low latency audio working is always 
it it, it can have <laughs> steps involved. Um, <laughs> this <laughs> it, it can. Off- uh, uh, let me just make a, a small note there. When you are running bare metal, you are doing that because you want the full attention of the CPU to be on the task you're given it. If you have an, an operating system environment, the operating system is tasked with doing multitasking, basically. And it gives all priority to all things that are running. Sorry about the parenthesis, please. Yeah, that's, yeah, perfect. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. Um, there's no operating system in the way. There's nothing that can take time away from MT32Pi. MT32Pi kind of is the operating system. So Munt and FluidSynth um, are the only things that are running on that Pi. So what we can do because of that is dial the latency all the way down. We can have really, really small buffers uh, for the audio. We can service incoming MIDI very, very quickly. We don't have to go through loads of abstraction layers. Um, on a modern PC, having those layers is kind of fine because you, you're dealing with multiple gigahertz on, on a modern desktop PC, right? And, you know, a millisecond here and there isn't really a problem. But on a Raspberry Pi, um, it can make a bit of a difference. And when I was working on this, um, I kind of approached it from the musician point of view where you really want to try and get the lowest latency possible. Um, And I'm sure most Mr. Enthusiasts are are like um, pretty well informed about latency. That's a lot of the point of Mr. is you can just throw away all of that stuff that that emulation um, suffers from in terms of in, in terms of latency and, and accuracy, you can have a very deterministic environment to run the, the the synth emulator in on this bare metal environment, and it seems to work pretty well. It, it was all by accident, by the way. It was it was like a weekend project that got out of control. Um, <laughs> oh, we all know about those. <laughs> yes, it's the same for my DOS pack. It was literally I can get this done in a weekend, no problem. Oh yeah, I know that feeling. But then you started for a weekend project, and when, what happened to Upish? Well, it, it kind of the ideas existed for quite a long time because Munt and FluidSynth are quite uh, mature projects now. They've, they've existed for a very long time, and there's um, there's some good YouTube channels uh, such as uh, Phil's Computer Lab. Have, have you heard of him? Mm. He's got um, a few videos on setting up dedicated, like uh, mini PCs for running Munt and Fluid Synth, uh, just to be a machine to run those synths for your retro PC. So the modern PC does nothing apart from run Munt and Fluid Synth, but then you've got your real four eight six on the side that's sending the MIDI to that. Um, that's been done for quite a long time now, and. Back in 2017, there was a thread on Vogons. So Vogons is a is a, a forum, um, that, and then the name stands for Very Old Games on New Systems, I believe. But the forum has quite a lot of sections in it, and there's a lot of people there not only just trying to hack old games to run on Windows 10 and stuff like that, but they're also um, very enthusiastic, uh, enthusiastic about old 486, 386 era PCs, sound cards, MIDI interfaces, all that stuff. So everything you'd ever want to know about like 90s and 80s PCs, it's all on that forum. And there was this. If that forum comes down, uh, we lose a, a huge chunk of, of knowledge, right? Yeah, we're screwed if, if, if that forum goes <laughs> yeah. away. 
and I lose about half my day of, of reading because um, I wouldn't know what to do with myself without it. <laughs> but then you, you were in Baden. Sorry about the interruption. No, not at all. <laughs> it's true. Um, it's, it's an absolute Aladdin's cave yeah. of information. Yeah, I love that place, yes. And um, so I, I, like yourselves, I, I was browsing this forum because it's, it's great just to read through some of the threads. And one of the threads was crazy idea, MT32 wave blaster card. So for context, um, a wave blaster card is something that you attach onto a sound blaster. A sound blaster card has a header on it, a little, a little pin header. And the idea is you can upgrade the sound blaster to give it a more powerful, more realistic MIDI synthesizer. Um, so you, you can attach, I think a popular one was like the DB50XG, um, mm. stuff like that. You could, you could attach to the card and then you, you instantly got a better MIDI synthesizer. Someone had the idea of putting a Raspberry Pi onto the Wave Blaster interface and running Munt on the Raspberry Pi. And I was reading this thread and I was thinking, this is cool, because I, I was just building a 486 at the time. I was trying to build like a DOS machine. And uh, I was reading through it and the guy had some plans and he, he was going to use a Raspberry Pi Zero, uh, which we know by mm. now that that wouldn't have worked. But um, going through the threads, um, I, I sort of joined the thread and I was like, hey, um, we could probably use something like build root, you know, so we, we could we could script um, a build system that would generate a very, very minimal Linux environment to run Munt or, and, or run Fluids in, um, and it would start up very fast. And I actually went away and I tried this, and so I, I made a GitHub repo called mt32-pi and, and made a build root script that built this exact thing. And it kind of worked. It wasn't complete. It, it just sort of did enough to almost get you Munt running. Um, and it had like, it had a few jitter related problems related to the the audio buffers and stuff like that. And it was usable, but it wasn't perfect. And when was kind that? Of, like when was that first check-in? That was probably February, 2017. Okay. I think. And then I kind of lost interest in it. Like I'd, I'd done it and the guy had his own plans, which didn't end up coming to fruition, but I'd, I'd done my experiment and I'd moved on because I was, I was at university at the time. So I was, I was busy with things. And there was a few stars being added to this GitHub repo in the background and someone opened an issue there saying, hey, it would be really cool if this was on bare metal. And this, this was opened in 2018. So a year later, and I instantly agreed because uh, I'd looked around and seen some other bare metal projects on Raspberry Pi, and and you know there was people trying to simulate Amiga floppy drives with bare metal code on the Raspberry Pi mm -hmm. and stuff. And we we know now that that kind of works. We see projects now like the Pi Storm where they're emulating the entire CPU on the Pi and plugging it into an Amiga five hundred. Like that's just crazy stuff. I, I love it. Um, but I, I didn't. I didn't actually make the jump to, to trying that out until um, until last year. So basically, it took a global pandemic for me to actually act on this mm. this issue. <laughs> um, so this basically was my lockdown project. I think a lot of people probably ended up in this situation where they found themselves having a bit more free time um, from not being able to work or whatever, or go or go into the you know your workplace. So I was. Um, 
I was going through my old GitHub projects and I thought, you know what, let's give this a try. And in in a in about a weekend, I had Munt running on top of uh, Circle, which is the bare metal environment I use. And I posted um, a quick video on Twitter of, of it running, like scum VM on a PC piping MIDI into bare metal Munt. And, um, and that's when the Twitter just blew up and I had to just keep going. So... <laughs> <laughs> By popular demand, it it seems that way, yeah. <laughs> and and how did you find about uh, this project, uh, Flinsbit? Yeah, I think it was interaction on, um, well, specifically the MT thirty two project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was interaction on on Smoke Monsters Discord, and we started talking about you know um, there was a AO forty six channel that was kind of had dried up and we were, you know, interacting over there and and that's how I got introduced to it. Of course, he had, you know, Dopefish had had matured that pretty far. Um enough where I could start tinkering. So again, I I'm a I'm a tinkerer. I I want to make something do something it's not supposed to and so um I've been around Raspberry Pis since the very first one and and you know IoT and all kinds of things I've run half mm -hmm. my pinball machines on Raspberry Pis so um <laughs> you know that tinkering for me was um was how I got into it and and that's how he and I met so and again pandemic yeah. is what gave me the time to kind of sit down and focus without you know so many distractions so yeah probably wouldn't wouldn't have this today without that which is funny yeah it's it's funny how the pandemic has changed our dynamics uh, it slowed me down but it has boosted many other projects and and well it, it, i'm glad it has boosted a bunch of projects like like it did for you guys and uh talking about that if i want to build uh one of these what do i need for, for mt32 pi um yes the the bare minimum you need is a plain old Raspberry Pi three uh, B or B plus or above, so Pi four uh, would work too, and and the USB MIDI interface. So you basically just need the Pi to run it on and some way of getting MIDI into the Pi, and that's that's the most off the shelf. You know, I just want to throw money at it kind of way <laughs> to to get that setup working. Um, and what that gets you is um, a very basic setup with no screen, no um, no high quality audio because you're using the the Raspberry Pi's headphone jack at that point, right? Um, which it's not really a proper hi-fi stereo output on the Raspberry Pi. It's a very cost-reduced machine, so uh, the headphone jack is is you know good enough to make some noise, but for a you know a project that's meant to be for a synthesizer making high quality sound it's it's not ideal but it does work and some people are happy with that and that's okay you know it's it's, it's mm -hmm. the bare minimum so you can try it out with just that you can get um a usb midi interface for about you know 20 to 30 pounds i'm not sure how that translates to dollars but it, it can't be that much different yeah like the um1's like maybe 60 bucks so mm -hmm. okay so yeah, that's that's like a premium one. Um, yeah, there are right. some good, like less expensive ones. But if you just want to have a guaranteed perfect MIDI interface, then the UM one is 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 like one of the. I would say it's probably the gold standard for MIDI interfaces, right? 
And you have a list of the ones that people have been testing and all that on your on your wiki, right? Oh. Yeah. So th- there's a few that are quite popular, and and some of those have made it onto that list. Um, there's one that I had until it blew up, so I've had to like kind of awkwardly move it off the list because I can't test it anymore. Um, which was the M Audio Uno, I think. Um, oh. I have one of those. Yes. Yeah, some of them work and some of them don't. So I think they've changed the design halfway through the product's lifetime or something. You know, you go digging around on Google and some people on Linux are like, I have to load firmware for this device manually. And I'm mm. just wondering, what are they doing? Like, I think they've rebuilt this, uh, this the same interface a few different ways. So I've put a question mark on that one. But there's a few others that are good. Um, as long as it's not that literally $3 thing um, with the silver cable, then you're probably fine. Now, in that gives you, what What do you need on the other end? Like, I've got, uh, if, if I have a next 68,000, I just need a MIDI cable, right? For example. Exactly, yeah. So if, if your host machine, the thing that's going to be sending the MIDI data, has mm-hmm. a MIDI port built in. So it could be the X68K. It could be an Atari ST. Um, they have built-in mm-hmm. MIDI too. And Amiga. Amiga has, um, Amiga doesn't have MIDI built in, but you can get MIDI interfaces for the Amiga. So that would be a serial port based uh, MIDI cartridge or, or box. Um, there's there's quite a few of those around. And, and yeah, and you would plug a, a MIDI cable from the out port on that interface to the import on your USB MIDI interface. Um, a lot of interfaces are, are are like literally cables, so they have mail connections on the end. So if you have a cable from something like an X68K, you probably need like a, a, a gender changer to make that cable mm-hmm. fit into the, the end of the USB cable, um, but they're not very expensive. Yeah, or you could build your own. And, and what if I have a mystery? What do I need if I do have a mystery to connect it? So that's that's when your options start opening up. So if you if you're the sort of person that thinks you might want to use MT32 Pi with um, with Mister and other things, then you probably want to look at the hardware solutions that have the Mister interface, which is the the one wire connection to the Mister from from the Pi. Um, as well as the traditional MIDI ports so that you can swap between them and you know connect it to different things. Uh, so you could look at things like the Pi MIDI from Edu Arana in Spain. He has mm-hmm. um, quite a few, he's had quite a few revisions of this hat, uh, which, um, which appeared very quickly after the project kind of blew up on Twitter. He, he, he got to work fast and made this interface that was amazing and he sent me a few prototypes. He makes a lot of stuff. He does, yeah. He's like he's like a a, a hardware machine in the retro yes. communities. Um, so yeah, and and recently he updated that to to mimic what the Mister Hat does. So his his hat does what the Mister Hat does as well. Um, if you just want to use it with the Mister exclusively, um, then your your cheapest option is to get the the official Mister Hat. So. That's the design that uh, Sorgalig made, and it's the little square thing that you see in all the in all the pictures people keep posting on everywhere. <laughs> it's uh, it's mm-hmm. quite nice. So um, that 
that gets you a direct connection to the mister with with one cable and if your psu is good and the cable is good then the the pi will work um it, it'll actually be powered by the mister so you don't need a separate power supply although you know your mileage can vary a little bit because there's differences in people's setups but usually it works pretty well and the physical buttons and the lcd too on that one which is cool Yes, yeah, that I think that makes it for a lot of people because they like to see the the level bars going up and down and stuff. So, <laughs> and and what about uh, does the mystery support adding a um, USB media interface and connecting it that way to the it to the Raspberry? It does, yeah. So if if you have one mm -hmm. of the the hats that's intended for real MIDI hardware, like the older mm -hmm. versions of the Pi MIDI, where there was just the uh, the real DIN MIDI interface, or if you go for something like the Clumsy MIDI, which is an open source design where you can solder it together yourself. Uh, the, the PCB designs are freely available, and anyone can um, can make their own. Um, mm -hmm. You can then just get a USB cable from the Mister to the the Raspberry Pi, and you can then use um, Binary Bonds MIDI Link software that's built into the Mister. Um, to connect the, the FPGA core to the USB interface, you know, via the um, Linux HPS interface, and that routes the MIDI mm -hmm. through, and then the MT32 Pi can receive it that way. So basically, you have a lot of options. And and any option that I didn't uh, ask about? There is um, an upcoming feature for the next version of MT32 Pi, which will let you do MIDI over the network. Um, it's not really Mister specific. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's more for people that um, maybe have software running on their PC that they occasionally want to use with MT32 Pi. So you could have um, the Pi running connected to Wi-Fi, and then you can run some software on your Windows or Linux PC um, to send MIDI over the network via Wi-Fi or Ethernet, um, and you can do that do it that way. Um, if you're on macOS, that feature is actually built into the operating system, so you don't actually need any additional software. Um, there's a protocol that's part of the OS uh, since the Tiger days, like 10.4, all the way back then. Um, wow. It's been a feature of macOS for quite nice. a long time. So I decided to try and implement that protocol so that there'd be quite a lot of options for people wanting to do MIDI over the network. Um, so it's not released just yet, uh, but it is in testing and, and people have had some success with it. So I'm quite excited to put that into the next version. That sounds like, like a lot of work. Yeah, there was some quite late night sessions with Wireshark trying to debug the protocol and, uh, and, and, and make it all work. Uh, but luckily there's quite a lot of open source software that, um, that's, that uses this protocol. So I was able to, to figure it out by studying source code of other projects and um and learning from that how's the latency Amazing. there when you're doing it that way it's so i i set out with with a very pessimistic uh expectations and i thought mm -hmm. there's the, on a raspberry pi because I, I imagine a pc like a desktop pc would be perfect for this where you've got a hardwired connection or or like a good quality wireless AC card or something like that where you just wouldn't notice anything. And I <laughs> thought the Pi would probably be a bit like bad because <laughs> it's um you know it's quite an inexpensive thing. It's it hasn't got the, the best Wi-Fi uh chip in the world. A but bit you like know the what? audio port. 
a bit like yeah. So, so your choice, and then testing it via Wi-Fi instead of the <laughs> because older models do have the the Cat Five port, right? Yeah, the, all, all of the B models have the Ethernet, um, but I, I went mm -hmm. straight for the the worst possible situation to make sure that it worked yes. with that. <laughs> um, apart from that, if you've ever seen my desk, it's just covered in wires, so I was <laughs> I was trying to avoid another one. <laughs> and you know what? It's fine. It works pretty well. Um, I I did a quick video on Twitter a, a few weeks ago where I played the Pi live using a keyboard. Um, via so that the keyboard went from USB to the PC, the PC went by Ethernet to the router, and then the router via Wi-Fi to the Pi. And I'm playing the keyboard, and it's fine. Like there's no horrible, noticeable delay. It just felt fine to play. So for people just playing music over the network, um, I think that will be a, a pretty reasonable option. You know? Yeah, it's freeing, right? It it frees you from a lot of of hassle, and. It's it's funny because uh, MIDI does have some. Uh, it, it's it's not consistent in the times that it sends commands, right? If you like play twice the same melody from the same computer to the same interface and record them, they are not exactly the same. Yeah, it's 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 kind of real time. Um, it's mm -hmm. when you receive the MIDI note, you just got to hope that it gets played as soon as possible. Um, the Network protocol um, that, that I've implemented has facilities for time stamping and for um, compensating for lost packets. So it's, it has a way to recover, say, if your Wi-Fi drops out, the state of the MIDI, um, of the MIDI channels is kind of preserved in a journal, and then the client is sending back what its its last good state was, so that the the server that's sending the the MIDI packets can can send a delta and fix it up, um, but it's not implemented yet. <laughs> but but the protocol can <laughs> handle it. Uh, so I might get around awesome. to that someday, and that would make it more robust. Um, but yes, MIDI, MIDI is is prone to to you know processor delays, things interrupting. You know, you know, just dragging the Scum VM window around on a desktop PC you could delay the MIDI. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's just how it works. <laughs> I know that's something that I stamped on when I wanted to just port MD Fourier to run in something like this, and it's something I'll have to deal in the future with. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding uh, this, what's what's your favorite setup for for this Flinsbit? How how do you run your setup? Yeah, I've got two setups. One is the um, I, you probably saw it on the Twitter image. That's my kind of my PC station. So I'm using you know a Dell you know nice Dell Trinitron monitor you know in Mister, and then I've got a Pi Four, and then on that one I'm still using my breadboard because I wanted to use that two point four. Um, 2.4 inch OLED that Dopefish and I got working. We spent, I don't know, that was probably maybe a day or two going back and forth to get that one implemented. Um, and that's one of my favorites just because I love the large screen. And then the second one, yeah, it looks nice. Um, mm -hmm. I have a, you know, the MT32 Pi, the official one. So, um, you know, one of my videos, I wanted to go through the start, you know, from the very beginning. If you wanted to create this yourself, um, taking Sorg's, you know, um, PCB, Gerber files, 
um, get those printed for yourself, grab the parts and, and build it completely yourself. That was kind of the intent there. And so that's my main system that's on my, um, on my TV, you know, where I kind of, that's my couch surfing, um, setup and it works, works perfectly. So, uh, and that's just a pie. I think that's a pie. That's an A plus with that, um, with that aluminum case that we probably sold out of whatever store was selling that they, they had an influx <laughs> of orders. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, that's the geek. What is it? The geek worm case, something along those lines. Yeah, it's it's got two names that we know of at least, uh, the Geek Worm or the U Geek. So yeah. I think there's two suppliers that have the same design somehow. I don't know what's happened there, but it's AliExpress, so it's not that <laughs> much of a surprise. Yeah. So that's probably this, the same the same one, but yeah. So that's the smaller Pi, you know, it's still a Pi 3B plus, but it, in a in a much smaller form factor. And then again, it the form factor fits perfectly with the board um, and the hat that snaps on top of that, you know, with the LCD. And then again, I, I own a 3D printer and printed Dope Fish's um, vertical stand for it, which is awesome. So that's my that's my main, you know, um, couch playing setup. And then I've got kind of a more PC setup with the keyboard and mouse. So um, those are my two setups. Nice. What about yours, Dope Fish? My, my MT32 Pi setup uh, changes on an almost hourly basis, uh, <laughs> depending on what people are complaining about in the GitHub issues or on Discord. <laughs> so um, I know that feeling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've got um, I've got a few different setups that I use for testing different configurations because um, I've I've tried to support quite a lot of popular um, hardware that you can use with MT32 Pi. So there's a few different. Um, styles of LCD and OLED that you can use. And so every time I touch the graphics-related code, I've got to make sure it works on all of the different screens that I've I've got support oh for. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> yeah, you end up with, like, a, a matrix of different support configurations, and it can be quite time-consuming to test things out. Um, but my go-to one is 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 the, the Sorg design hat um, with... Uh, with the with the mister because it's just so convenient mm-hmm. and it doesn't take up so much room on my desk um my most recent addition to the the test setups is a cm4 so compute module 4 uh io board which is mm. the biggest raspberry pi that you can find um <laughs> so it's it's almost it, it's almost like a mini itx motherboard uh, with a pci okay. express slot on it and everything wow um, awesome with the it's dev, a really cool it's board. The, like the dev breakout that it snaps onto, I guess. Exactly, yeah. It's yeah. um it's like a carrier board that has every possible IO of the CM4 exposed on it that you can just use to to build something that doesn't look so ridiculous. Um so that's my main test setup because it's just got everything out in the open, you know, ready to to you know, plug stuff into and, and everything. Um, very good board. Someone donated that, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Um, it was one of my one of my wanted hardware things. I've got a list of Pies that I don't have, um, like the Raspberry Pi 2 and uh, the CM3. Um, I think someone's developing a, a product uh, based on the CM4, so they wanted me to have this so I could try and make sure it works, and then we can get this thing working. Um, That's cool. 
but it's yeah, it's become it's become my favorite pie because it just looks insane. I, I have to check one out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds very interesting. I think it's worth noting too the mixing capabilities of that that hat, right? Yeah, um, yeah I was going to ask about that because. You need mixing because many sounds uh, don't necessarily come up from the synthesizer, right? Right. Like, uh, you know, most, again, uh, I'm thinking in the DOS days, um, a lot of the DOS games were developed. So the, the music that's playing, you have the ability to do MIDI. And then the, um, you know, any of the effects. So like the gun effects in Doom, you know, those kind of things. Those are still going to be... FM, you know, and or, you know, it's Sound Blaster generated. And so, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, your Sound Blaster, you were either mixing back through your Sound Blaster or, you know, you had a mixing, um, you know, device sitting between your speakers. Uh, and that was actually my original MT32 setup, you know, with a real MT32 mm -hmm. and an SC55. And then I'm mixing back in to get kind of the double, the double sound you needed. And of course, in Mister, with the, you know, with the way that it's implemented, you get that naturally over the, you know, the single cable, which is amazing. It makes it such a clean setup. And uh, how do you regulate levels between those? Yeah, so I mean, you've got the normal MIDI, uh, you've got the normal Mister audio control for both, again, the global config and the the core config, and then. Of course, in DOS games, you you have yet another volume control that might exist for those specific games. And then you have the MT32 and specifically the MT32 Pi, which has mm -hmm. its own audio. And then, of course, Dopefish added the gain ability. Probably worth talking about that. And then, um, you know, when you get it back over into Mr. the the only other thing that you can do is control the volume of the MT32. So there's, again, we talked about it at the beginning, there's those sysx commands that you, uh, I probably spent a day or two going through and generating sysx commands for my pack so that I could just control <laughs> volume. And of course I asked Dopefish after the pack and he was like, oh, here, if they're on my GitHub or wherever they were, it was so funny. <laughs> um, I was like, oh. Great. <laughs> um, but anyway, you can control the volume of that device as well as the core. Um, and so some of the games in the pack, I'll send those sysx commands before the game kicks off because I know that it's out of whack between the mixing. But most of the time, it's really, really good. You know, it, it's what you would expect on a real piece of hardware. Yeah, because you're using uh, digital protocols instead of mixing in the analog domain, right? Yeah, that's one of the cool things about that setup. You know, the I2S that's that's set up. It's all it's digital signals. You're not using the Pi's audio hardware at all in that setup. You're getting a digital signal, and you can pipe that out. Um, you know, of the Toslink, uh, you know, a Toslink connection and or straight through the HDMI audio. So you get a really, really clean um, audio signal from both devices, both, you know, kind of the Sound Blaster side and the, and the MT32 Pi. And you send it by a Toslink or HDMI? Yeah, for me, I do, yeah. yeah. Um, definitely the best way, even out of the mister, to get nice, clean audio. Yeah, but maybe people don't imagine or, or can't ambition how it's done usually. 
the MT32 has two ports for, for the output of the audio. You have the uh, MIDI cable going in. You have the power cable coming in. You have to take those uh, audio out, RC, well, it's not, it's TRS uh, outputs, and put those into a mixer. Take out the audio from your PC, or imagine doing it with a mystery. You have to convert your audio to analog, place it into a mixer, and then bring that back to the place you're listening to. So it's it's a real uh, rat nest of cables. I'm used to it, but it's uh, they, they don't know how much they're uh, saving space and cabling with this, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> right. There's, yeah, like my main... Some, um, <laughs> sorry. God, I was just going to say my main computer upstairs, that's my 486 with a, you know, again, the the, you know, four different devices trying to get all the audio and everything mixed correctly and, and playing on my Roland speakers, you know, that's, that takes effort. Um, whereas on the Mr. It's one cable, um, and you're good to go. Yeah. When I, when I play on my setup currently, I have to have one, one of my audio cards is digitizing the, the MT32 and, uh, mixing it digitally. And that would be the way, but when I'm playing on, on like the X68000, you have to have this whole mess of things, right? The, those that that external piece of hardware that mixes analog audio that's that's part of the experience back in the day and you are saving people that that hassle yeah there's um there is one uh trick you can do with some of the later synthesizers which uh is the kind of ghetto thing that i do which is um where if if you have something like an sc55 Mm-hmm. Some of those have an input that will mix uh, the... It, it lets you basically daisy-chain multiple synthesizers together. So yeah. for my little stack, I've got a Roland MT32, um, the MU2000, and then an SE88 Pro. And I've got the MT32 going into the MT, uh, the, the MU2000, <laughs> the MT, MU2000 going into the SE88 Pro, and then the SE88 Pro goes to my mixer along with the output from my computer or whatever else I want to do. Um, so you can get away with it sometimes, but it's still a lot of wires behind all of those synths. And so mm. when you've got something like uh, the Mister with just one USB cable, you, you just, you have no idea how much you're saving with, with that because there's so many yeah. wires involved in setting up essentially multiple devices with you know power and audio and everything. It becomes uh, spaghetti very quickly, and also you are daisy chaining the MIDI, the MIDI from from one device to the other, right? Because you have small MIDI patch cables to connect from each one to, so you can output the same MIDI command to the whole chain, I guess. Absolutely. And on top of that, yeah, yeah, because I I, I know that as well. But some of those don't have volume controls for for balancing the input and output, and some do. Yes. So you're left to your own devices, even then. Yes, so um, I'm lucky with these models that they have volume knobs up front, um, but I'm sure there will be other synthesizers that are very minimal, like maybe the more um, sort of compact module type things where mm-hmm. they don't have any front control panel, where you just couldn't get away with that. So yeah, most people that in, invest in real MIDI synthesizers will probably end up with a mixer on their desk as well. Yeah, that's for sure. I'm taking my my SC55 can't uh, control the mixing volume. It simply mixes at the 
at the line level that it has. It can control the output volume, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the, X, the SC8850 uh, can do that, does have a control, but it's, it's up to the model. And here you have individual controls and you're sending everything digitally. It's, it's very interesting. And talking about that, uh, I'm forced to ask, uh, does it support filters? Um, as in MT32Pi? Yeah. I'm, I'm asking because um, uh, some of these uh, have some low-pass filtering or, well, it, I haven't measured it, but if, if it could be measured, does it support it or, or is it part of the, what the project will eventually do or, or not? You know what? I have no idea. <laughs> um, okay. Maybe, maybe Munt has some options that I haven't exposed yet uh, because it has quite a lot of stuff you can do to to change how the um, simulated digital to analog stage happens. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. there is a mode in Munt where you can you can make it simulate what the original MT32 did and deliberately introduce noise into the output signal. So if, mm-hmm. if you go and look at the MT32 wiki page, you'll find a little bit about the DAC and in some versions of the MT32, um, there was some kind of problem with the DAC stage, which meant that um, it kind of got distorted slightly. And mm-hmm. what the Munt project is, did was make the default be it fix that bug. But if you really want okay. to recreate the noise, then you can put that back. Um, and there's a few other options as well, which I haven't exposed yet. And I, I basically just haven't done it because no one's asked me to really. I, I don't think anyone's got any burning desire to make the sound quality worse deliberately. Um, <laughs> but it, it can be done. Um, as for fluid synth, I think that's got filters. Um, it just depends on the sound font that you use and whether it makes use of them. Um, I'm not sure about whether they're controllable via MIDI. Uh, I think it's all up to the sound font to wire up different parameters to different MIDI CC controls and stuff. So, yeah, I'm not not too sure. I think your mileage varies depending on what, what your setup is. Yeah, it's this point because um, there's there's this discussion about if, if noise is something you want, but also noise, not, not only noise, but shaping, because these things have analog output stages, right? Yeah, every single one of these, like you mentioned, and shaping the audio signal to curve or compensate for those curves could be one of the... Uh, I'm not saying you need to do it, but it, it could be one of the uh, goals, right? Because I have to tell people, Dovefish here made the Amiga version of MD Fourier. That's a project that does this. I'm, I'm not pushing <laughs> what what it is but i want to tell that you did that and you did that like in a weekend so that was amazing <laughs> yeah I, I need to get back onto that because there's been so much um activity that i need to catch up on um with suggestions and i uh, and it's it's probably not going to take me long it's just been one of these things where i've been distracted on another on other stuff no no worries um <laughs> but yeah it's it was great to see um people picking that tool up very very quickly and, and coming back with all these different test results on all the different amigas uh so i i think i've got a lot to learn from that because you guys have obviously done a lot of studies to do with 
um, EQ shapes and and filtering and stuff. And I just I haven't got a clue about any of that. So um, no, it's, there's so much stuff to learn that we can't cover everything. Every one of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if but but talking about that, you've worked also on the PT twelve ten MK one project, right? Uh, not yeah. Amiga related. I'm, I'm saying, what what's that? Could you tell the audience what what that is about? Yeah, of course. So uh, PT twelve ten. So the the name comes from ProTracker, which is arguably the de facto file format uh, for Amiga tracked music modules. Uh, um, just about every game or demo will use some kind of module for the soundtrack. Um, so ProTracker has resulted in, it, it's basically a tool for writing music on the Amiga and it's resulted in an absolute, um, an absolutely enormous amount of music available mm-hmm. in that format for the Amiga. And the 1210 part comes from the model of uh, the most popular DJ turntable that you can buy, which is the the Technics 1210 uh, turntable, which is very popular among DJs because it has the pitch control on the side. So the idea, um, my my friend Akira was, uh, who, who's a member of EAB and he's, he's in quite a lot of the Amiga communities. He had this idea of, um, of, of having two Amigas side by side in place of the turntables and being able to DJ Amiga music with two Amigas and, and, you know, being able to mix between them with, with a hard, a hardware mixer. And, uh, and he wanted a, basically a mod player, an Amiga mod player that would let you uh, change the pitch up and down, um, add loop effects, have different cue points, you know, all the features that you would see in a modern, um, you know, DJ software package or something like a pioneer CDJ where you're able to press buttons and skip instantly, to various points in the song so that you can mix from one to the other and you know pull up all these different interesting parts in the song and um and then hoffman who is uh, another one of my friends who's a huge huge name in the amiga scene he's he's one of the the best amiga musicians that has ever um <laughs> you know has, has ever been active on the platform like if if you look at his back catalog of, of demo scene in amiga music um, you will not be disappointed. There's, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, but he's also a bit of a programmer as well, and he wrote the software for Akira. So he, Akira was designing it. He, he designed the user interface and then and, and the concept, and Hoffman did the programming in Assembler, in, in 68K Assembler. Mm-hmm. And they released the first version of PT-1210 at uh, the revision demo party. I can't remember which year it was, but it was, it was a few years ago now. Um, and it got very popular and, and people on YouTube are using it and there's all sorts of people, you know, asking about, oh, can, can you add these features in and can you add this and that? And one of the, the limitations of the original version was that you couldn't um, browse between folders. It, like you had to have all the, all the mod music in one folder. Mm. And Hoffman's programming experience mainly came from um, the, the classic way of Amiga programming where you take over the whole system and you program it like a demo or a game where you, you just get rid of the operating system and you take over the whole machine. And and it kind of worked and it's usable, but when you want to use features from the operating system like load different directories and browse different drives and stuff, it gets really difficult when you've killed the operating system. Um, It just doesn't work. So they needed some help rewriting parts of that program 
to work um, in a system-friendly manner so that you could keep the operating system working and then, you know, use some of the essential features without, you know, ruining any of the performance or anything or, or, or changing how the audio sounded. So that's where my involvement started. I, I joined the project and I started rewriting chunks of it uh, in, in, in C, just in, in plain C. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a good time to do it because when I started, the Amiga GCC project had really gotten to a good stage. So there's a, there's a guy called Bebo who has ported uh, the GNU GCC compiler to 68K. It, well, mm-hmm. kind of um, backported almost because there was an old version of GCC for 68K, but then it fell yeah. out of maintenance. So it was a very, very old version. But now he's he's kind of brought the new versions of GCC back to the Amiga. And um, yeah, we've made a lot of progress. We've rewritten almost, I would say about 60% of the whole program is now in C and, and system friendly. So you can start it from workbench and it works mostly. <laughs> um, awesome. And and that's it's a lot of fun to work on. Are you doing all that Tell from some. the um, from real Amiga hardware, or are you using the the Mister? <laughs> I've I've started using the Mister because it's just so much more convenient. Uh, the one thing that I have on hardware that I don't have on the Mister is a six eight zero three zero, and that's important for a developer mm. because you have the MMU, mm, and yes. when you have the MMU, you can catch all sorts of memory related problems. Um, you can detect bad memory accesses like null pointer dereferences and stuff like that, and you can't do that with with uh, the the O two O, which is what the the, the um, Mini Meg Core currently has. So if Mister got uh, an O three O or just something with an MMU, then that could be my my main semi real dev platform. Um, otherwise, I just use Win UAE quite a lot because it's a very it's very good mature emulator. Yeah, it's it's, it's convenient. Talking about that, uh, plane speed. Uh, have you ever thought? I'm not throwing work at you. I'm just uh, thinking. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about uh, the trackers and the. I've I've kind of worked on this on the XTCA thousand for my own convenience and, and on DOSBox, but an environment to play MIDI files from your setup like a jukebox. That kind of thing is something that would be interesting uh, when combined with a uh, with 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 MT32 Pi, and uh, you have a lot of M- for MIDI files. It's it's a huge setup, and and for many games and rips and even MIDI files from elsewhere. Because people, when they think MIDI, they don't think what we are talking about. They think the terrible. Uh, sound font from Windows back in the 90s, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm about 90% done with that. So um, there's, you know, there's always the, you know, the last 10% is 90% of the work. Um, yeah. So we, I started on that, uh, a pack that is a music pack. Um, Binary Bond created a brand new interface. It's really, really cool. Um, allows you to pass in different trackers depending on the extension. So it's all very much like Total DOS Launcher. Obviously, mm-hmm. want to give him 100% credit for all the Total DOS Launcher changes that happened for specifically for Mr. for my packs. Um, he's working on a front-end interface for that that allows um, for that specific thing. So think 
the same uh, a list. So the curated list would be a combination of all the MIDI soundtracks, which I've got pulled down, um, sorted into folders, you know, um, using long file names, you know, based on all the games. So you could go in and the only one that's there is Monkey Island, but that's the only one we need. Just kidding. There's <laughs> there's hundreds of those um, soundtracks that are already... So I've got that curated. So that's where I started is how do I get it into just the file format, you know, and structure? And how, how can I make it easily indexable? Um, and then Mod Archive is obviously a popular place where you've got all the XM mod... Um, you know, basically all the different file formats that that exist for the DOS side of the of the mod scene, um, and those are really nice curated lists. So I've got that pulled down and sorted, and and kind of dwindling that down to a manageable pack because there's you can imagine how large that is. Just like on the mm-hmm. Amiga scene, <laughs> the music scene is just as large or or larger, um, and. Eventually, I do plan to source some um, ideas from the community. I can't just open that up completely or it'll never get done. So, But I'm going to put more time than five minutes into deciding um, what goes in there. And then, again, that, that front-end interface. So pull down a VHD, you know, pull down a, a, a virtual hard disk image, throw it into AO486, hit go, and... Um, then the other cool thing that binary bond did was it can handle multiple trackers. So based on file extension or what you select in the config file, you can pick, I want to use, you know, and pick, there's a bunch of different tracker players out there, um, and or MIDI players. So, um, that's the intent. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of three different projects I'm working on and that's one of them. Yeah, because, uh, sourcing, uh, Original software from the era that works for every single case is is an interesting task, and, right? Yeah, and then you add on any kind of core differences. So there are differences between the AO four eighty six core and and what a real DOS machine runs. So you've got to know kind of your limits and your barriers. And th- to be frank, there's just a lot of testing. So it's like, okay, this, you know, version 1.54 of this latest tracker doesn't work. Back it up two versions. This is where the memory manager changed. And this memory manager mm-hmm. works with that tracker on the core. Now that's the one that will be the base for playing all those musics. So, you know, and then multiply that times, you know, 10 or so different um, paths you can take. And then, of course, you still run into the memory issues that you had in DOS. And now we do have the trick that I wish I would have come up with 30 years ago, which is to just bounce the system and automatically select the memory manager for that, change a config file and launch whatever you were trying to launch in the first place. Um, that would have made things so much easier on me. Yeah. And I didn't really <laughs> think about, about it until we got into Mr. and that would have absolutely worked back then. But anyway, yeah, Music Pack is on the list. That will be a lot of fun, and um, it is planned. Yeah, it's really interesting. And on X68000, you have like this player that also plays everything you, you throw at it because it's a smaller scene. And uh, this, this kind of would make it like a perfect jukebox, like I want all this folder music played back in the background, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so and there are some of those on on in in the DOS setup too. But 
again, you run into, there's not a perfect one. And so there's, it's more like there's seven of them, but being able to, to play a jukebox, to just basically kick it off and just play file after file or shuffle or, and have the other big thing that kind of the realization um, in the way that we originally built the packs is that has an index file that's generated way ahead of time, number one, so that you can get thousands of games in a DOS interface and have it have be searchable and quickly find a game. Okay. On, the, that's nice. on the music side, we don't necessarily need that. We don't, it, we don't need it to be indexed because you're not going to have that many files in there. And so what that gives us the ability to do is people can add to it or we could have Mr. Scripts that go out and pull from different sources of public archived you know, uh, music like Mod Archive and things like that where this stuff is, is curated and have it um, drop into the core and play. So a lot of the work, I got to give Dopefish credit to here real quick. Um, I had the idea of being able to update the DOS VHD from the Mr. site, right? So it was well, going to be a mm-hmm. two-step process. So one script that kind of used Mr. FS to mount the, uh, you know, a folder and then pull any changes in, and then a DOS script that ran to update those changes. And... Um, Dope dropped in like randomly and said, Hey, I wrote this Linux script for you. It does basically everything you want. Here you go. And it mounts all the VHDs for you, pulls down from GitHub, you know, kind of the skeleton was there, but he pulled it together for me. So hats off to him um, for helping me, you know, bridge that gap. So that same gap can be used to basically anything that that is sourced on, you know, like again, like Mod Archive where there's there's music out there and you wanted to get it all the way into DOS, we can do that now with a Mr. Script. So it's really cool. That's amazing. That's amazing and a lot of work. <laughs> it is, yeah. A passion project, right? It's fun. And yeah. it's exciting because I, I didn't get into the mod music scene um, uh, at all, really, kind of growing up. Because again, that was definitely on the Amiga side, and and I wasn't into that. And the DOS side, you had some of it in the BBSs, but not really, not not as much as kind of more of the games and the door games and things like that. So yeah, this kind of happened after the fact, right? Right. Like yeah, ten or fifteen years after. Yeah, and including now, right? You've got that yes. entire huge mod scene. You've got musicians still using all these old systems to generate it, and there's new music out there that that you can play you know you, that you could play on the mister now so mm-hmm. um it'll be fun it's fun for me to to go in and kind of curate those things and make it available to people that uh just don't have exposure to it and kind of just using the platform to expose people to new things that's awesome and uh talking about that which are your favorite mp32 tracks of games well not the tracks games that are probably not not Monkey Island 1. You can say Monkey Island 2. Then <laughs> because we already established that's the only thing you need. But uh what if if somebody no I'm not going to say if somebody got gross tired. I'm going to say if somebody wants to check inferior music on the platform, what would they select? I don't fish you go first. Sure. Yeah, my my PC game experience from the MT32 era is very limited, to be completely honest with you, because um, it was just just enough before my time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you're way younger than us, right? 
Um, a little bit, maybe. Well, not not way. Yes, a little bit. Yeah, I'm 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 sort of an aging millennial, uh, so. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would from from playing through some of the games in Flynn's pack uh, that that work with MT32 and being aggressively told by my friends that I must play uh, Dune. Dude. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I have listened to the Dune uh, soundtrack and it is, it is, it's just gorgeous. So I'll, I'll go with that. That, that. that one without the proper CSX commands is destroyed. <laughs> but it's, yeah. it's an, amazing, an amazing soundtrack, that one. Yeah, that's probably yeah, the... That's the one where I think um, it definitely flexes the the hardware and how how creative people can be on it. Um, I you know any again any of the Sierra games really well done. A um, lot of effort went into creating those. It doesn't just sound like somebody's sitting behind a keyboard, you know, banging it out into MIDI and then it just plays as the soundtrack. It really it really feels like. Um, you know, there's a lot of effort into those. So those are the ones that I go back to. Um, Doom is fun. You know, again, you're getting into the general MIDI and and mm -hmm. um, SC50, you know, sound canvas side of things. But um, I have really enjoyed um, the flexibility. We haven't really talked about it a lot. So you've got on the MT32 Pi, you've got the MT32 ROMs and kind of the three or four different versions of the ROMs there for your choosing. And then on the sound canvas side, you got all these SC2 files, right? And those are, you know, um, they can be very different. And so when we first got this set up and using the pack and being able to switch the sound fonts very quickly, I had a blast going through and playing games like Doom. Oh, Descent is a huge one in there. Descent and Descent 2. Oh, yeah. Um, great, great uh, soundtracks in those. I could listen to those all day. So, And I grew up, but I played Descent probably more than any game, to be perfectly honest. That was one where we got into LAN parties. We were in our offices all connected you know, 10 base T and, and right after work at five o'clock, everybody's playing descent. So, and have you tried Silphid? I haven't. No, M me neither. It's a, uh, it's the empty 32 version of an originally FM soundtrack on the 2608 for PC 88, but it's, it's really good. Hmm. It's really good. It, it was, uh, brought to the States by Sierra. Oh, nice. And, uh, oh. Oh, yeah. And, Go on, give it a. Uh, the, the intro music is really good. I don't think that's in the top three hundred, so I'm gonna have to hear. I'll probably hear about that. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm sending you the the. I'll put it in the five hundred pack. <laughs> I'm sending you the MIDI file right now. All right. Awesome. I already sent you my rip of uh, Akumaju for X sixty eight thousand. It has the first uh, C six commands in a separate MIDI file. That's cool. So I already sent you those for you. The the one I those were captured from a real X sixty eight thousand via via an uh, M audio interface for a MIDI. Nice. Very cool. Okay. Yeah, I'll have to check those out afterwards. Yeah, those are my and then yeah. um I think it yeah, it's Falcon three um is a good one as well. Uh again, that's a that's a fighter game. I I've liked all the flight sims and things like that, and that one's got a good a good soundtrack. Um, those are the ones that, those are my standouts. Oh, they mentioned that Sorcerian, Mr. Warrior says that Sorcerian has MT32 MT support. I, I'm really interested in that because 
that's Yusuke Koshiro's music ported to MT32. That's cool. Okay. Nice. There, there was one um, that we haven't mentioned, I think, uh, Tyrion, which oh, not yeah. MT32, but, but general MIDI, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Someone, so I, I did a live stream at one point where I was kind of, um, we, we just kind of finished doing the the integration stuff and I was really excited to show people. So I did a random impromptu live stream on Twitch um, and it was so unplanned that I was just sort of fumbling around on the mister, just not sure what on earth to try and play. And someone in the chat, my, my friend um, Brendan, who's uh, he's actually a video game musician, he just said, play Tyrion now, just play Tyrion and, and go into the jukebox section. Don't jukebox. even bother with the game. Yeah, yep. it has it has its actual own jukebox where it has the soundtrack. But also, um, when I started it up, I was just shocked because the whole screen turned into this visualization as well. Because it, it's not just awesome. a player; it actually turned into a. It was like it was almost like one of those Winamp visualizations when you uh, when you listen to the music and all the these stars are flying around, and um, that sounded amazing. I was only just using the. Uh, the default sound font that that I include with MT32 pipes is uh, general user GS, so uh, I can only imagine what it sounds like on on some of the the SC55 uh, fonts. But yeah, it, it sounded good. It's funny you bring that one up. So the the MIDI pack I'm building, I I went in and you can actually launch that jukebox from the command prompt using Tyrion's. Um, you know, executable. So I've got that set up where you can kick off that jukebox in full screen uh, for the MIDI pack, specifically for that purpose, just because it has such good music. And it's got a cool, again, it's a jukebox interface, which is fun. That's great. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's obviously good enough such that it deserves its own menu item in your pack. So mm-hmm. yeah, if, if that gives the audience a feel for how blown away I was uh, when I first heard it, yeah. Yeah, you also have like obviously all the LucasArts games like Indiana Jones and and Loom, and uh, Willy Beamish also supports MT32, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of those are good. So um, the Star Wars games, like any of the Lucasfilm stuff, is good too. I mean, when you think think about X Wing and um, all of them, X Wing, B Wing, X Wing versus um, you know all all of those support MIDI, and they they really sound really good. I was trying to find yeah, my list of games that are in the... I've got the main check-in that I did, and I'm just trying to find it. Um, I'll paste that in. And um, what what would you recommend people that want to get into into this setup? Is what 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 would be the the way to enter this? Uh, the most friendly way? What what that you can think of? Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to come out with it. So there's an archive.org pack that, you know, kind of is the base of this. Um, It was curated from archive.org content. So, um, you know, you you basically start with the base setup, which is the the BIOS files that you need for it. So in a a folder um, on your mister, either on USB um, on the network or or on the SD card, you need games, AO46. And then underneath that, you need a couple of ROM files. Those are the video ROM and the normal BIOS um, ROM. 
and then you need um you know for my packs i broke out the os so dos is in its own hard drive so that if you we wanted to swap those out it's kind of separate from the games um and so um you need the main basically c volume which is where the dos os is and then the secondary uh, part of that is the second vhd which is all where all the games and utilities and things like that um and then there's a CD folder for all the CD um, games. The Mr. Core will automatically mount the CDs for you. And again, that's all scripted. So you don't, as a user, end user, you don't have to worry about any of that. It'll just, if you're using the pack and you're using the front end, it'll automatically mount all those CDs for you and just play the game. Um, and so everything is self-contained. It's as close as we could get it to um, basically downloading a ROM, you know, like if you were going to download an arcade ROM, very much like that. It's just you've got a secondary interface that gives you all the list of games. And um, and then if you set up your MT32Pi um, exactly the way that uh, Dope Fish's README um, is, explains it, then, you know, you're off to the races. You just, it's click and click and run. That's uh, that's really amazing because that's uh, that's that kind of simplification takes an enormous amount of effort and and we thank you for for doing that guys and uh, I want to say that uh, archive org is an invaluable resource for for this kind of thing right yeah I mean it's where you know you think about even on a real machine or resources that you need um, if you were going to build up a three eighty six or four eighty six again I'm a collector so. I've got a, uh, you know, an IBM PC Junior, a 286, 386, 486, you know, real hardware. And if you need the drivers or you need some old piece of an operating system, it's out on archive.org. And if it's not there, it's on Vogons. And if it's not there, it doesn't exist. So that's really, I spend a lot of my time on lost, you know, searching for a specific driver for this specific sound blaster or you know, the things that are included in the pack to find just the perfect version that that fits into the the guardrails that we have and, and to get that working. So invaluable resource. Yeah, shout out to Jason Scott and, and all the archive art team. If, if you guys don't know what that is, it's an incredible archive that does several things. One of them is like index every website that it can and, and timestamp it and, and keep the the different versions in time and also does this uh, incredible archive of PDFs and, and executables and binaries and it's an invaluable resource. Go check it out if you don't know it. I think my favorite thing about archive.org is is the fact that it saved my own website from being lost because I forgot <laughs> to take backup ages ago. And also um, the Amiga magazines that I talked about right at the beginning of this, this session are all on there. So I, I can just go on archive.org at any time and just look through those magazines from the 90s all over again. It, 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 like, it's just incredible. Yeah, there's there's so much information there and it's an invaluable resource. They, they do accept donations. So if anyone is, is inclined to do that, they probably can can make good, good use for of, uh, of that. And... Uh, Right now, uh, do you spend any time gaming? And if so, on which platforms? Uh, how about you, Dopefish? 
Um, it's it's pretty sad and ironic that I don't actually spend much time gaming on um, on the Mister uh, or or any of my retro platforms because I do have quite a lot of real hardware. Um, it's not sad. I'm asking this because we probably will get the same answer from everybody. But please go I, on. I had a feeling that might be the case. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is. I think it, it might be a programmer, techie person type thing. Um, we like to just get things working, and then we get, and then, then that's it. The challenge is over. We move on to something else. Um, like the game itself doesn't end up mattering. But there is um, there is one game that I always keep playing, which is Overwatch on PC. I just love that game. I've always loved first person shooters wow. uh, on on PC, and um, I. I, I have this group of friends that I play with every weekend, and it's like my thing that I do every every Friday, Saturday, um, especially throughout this pandemic. It's like one of the few ways I've been able to socialize. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I do really enjoy playing that. It's not not in like an overly competitive way because you can play these sorts of games very competitively and seriously. We just have a few drinks and play casually, and and that's good enough for me. <laughs> but yeah, it's like having a, a phone call, but without the awkward silences, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Silence just means you're actually playing the game, and that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it kind of bonds that way. Yes, that's good. And how about you? Uh, yeah, I'm a bit of the same. Again, I talked about it earlier. I'm a tinkerer, and so it that challenge of doing something that not a whole lot of people are doing. So I, I spend a lot of time on that, including, you know, like I'm an arcade collector, pinball collector. And so I enjoy fixing a lot more than I enjoy playing, but I do play. Um, obviously based on my tag, I love um, anything and everything Tron. Mm. So I've got Tron, Disc of Tron and the Tron Legacy pinball. And I play those a lot. Um, and discs of I Tron. do have an environmental Distatron and did a full restore on it. Lots awesome. and lots of fun. I love that machine. Yeah. yeah. Um, that one's hard because it's the full environmental. And so, you know, getting the artwork and doing the full repair and all those that I got tons of enjoyment out of that from a gaming perspective, um, in, in, you know, today's gaming, I play Destiny 2. It's the only game I play that's on, you know, on, on my Xboxes uh, and PC, depending on where I'm sitting. So it's literally the only kind of next-gen game I play. And then I find myself um, either, and again, the rest of it's going to be DOS. It's going to be those old-school games. <laughs> um, and I'll... <laughs> It'll either be something I saw on YouTube. So there's some great YouTube channels that kind of focus on those things and somebody's sitting there playing and I, I go play it. The other thing is when I'm doing these packs um, and I'm, I'm going in and I'm testing games, I'll find myself playing for an hour, you know, and I'm supposed to be <laughs> testing and fixing and checking in GitHub code and moving on. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is fun. And then an hour goes by and I'm like, I've been sitting there playing Arkanoid or Prince of Persia or... You know, in some of the games, some of the bugs that people send, I made a joke about it, I think, this week. Um, it's like, oh, I can't remember which game it was. There's a couple of different games. I think even Monkey Island had a bug in it. And it was like, get to this point in Monkey Island. And it was like an hour in. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I've got to play this an hour so I can find where to. <laughs> now, it's great, but I'm sitting there trying to get to the bug and. 
and um, spending my time sitting there playing Monkey Island. I know that was one of them. But there's a few of those where those bugs don't manifest themselves. It's not like five minutes into the game or, you know, right after the launch screen, so I end up playing them. But I enjoy uh, just the quirky ones that are in there where somebody says something and I'll, I'll play it for an hour. And uh, regarding the, the collection, have you found it useful to have the real hardware side by side and compare it with... Invaluable, the... right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the, the packs that I create are actually almost compatible with a real PC. Um, because of the mm -hmm. mister and how close it is from, from an accuracy perspective, I, and I say accuracy... 486s in that whole era they weren't accurate right it was all over the place and but but the way that it you interact with um with dos and 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 the setup that it has it's very very similar and so you can take that almost that exact same pack make an image you know make a fat 32 image throw it on a you know a real machine that's going to boot up exactly like it does on the mr you're gonna there's basically two things that are different. Number one is the auto seeding mounting. You're not you don't have that ability. So I literally go mm -hmm. burn a CD for whatever game I'm trying to play. And then I use, you know, SH, you know, a, a virtual version of of mounting that CD where I actually eject the so I change the script in the pack to say instead of kicking off the Mr. Auto Mount CD, all it does is run the eject command to open the the eject tray on my 486 and then I drop the CD in of the game. The front end plays exactly the same, all of those things, but it helps me identify problems that aren't core related problems. Because if you get a black screen mm -hmm. over on a real 486 machine, then you know, it's not the video BIOS or, or something Mr. Related. It's something config related. So I probably fixed 20 or 25 games in the pack knowing that it did the exact same thing on a real piece of hardware. And it was real easy to take, take that image, take it from the mister and put it on a real PC and, you know, kind of jump between a 286, a 386, and a 486. I, I, it fills me with joy to hear that because that's, that's kind of uh, needed in, in the world right now. More people that can and, and are willing to do that kind of job of comparing and using their, their collections because... Collectors these days, uh, many don't understand that preservation is the only way for their own hardware to run in the future. I've been talking to the Exodos collect, uh, the Exodos converter developer. He's um, the one that's helped me add all of these Mister features and having a real hardware option in it so that you could pick real hardware. And mm -hmm. these small changes that you have to make now to get. The same Exodos that came from DOSBox that is ultimately emulating old hardware and get that same collection with a really nice interface and memory swappers and all that back over on real hardware. So it's something that's on the yes. list that, that would, it helps me in troubleshooting being able to, to drop back and, and test it. But then I like playing on real hardware just as much as I like playing on Mr. Yeah, and also helps uh, for the future because I believe uh, firmly that if we have the systems running now, it's our kind of a, not an obligation, but a responsibility to, to try and, and verify that uh, behavior is, uh, is the same and, and document that because sometimes the work is put forward without saying that this was verified on, on, on original hardware, right? And uh, that it matches and that is valuable by itself. 
because it could be a reference for the future. Yeah, I just don't want to look like an idiot. Um, you know, when I post a GitHub issue, I better have found exactly, you know, here's the testing platform, here's what I went through mm -hmm, to get there, mm -hmm. because if I didn't and I just posted it out there, you know, I could, it, for dope, Dopefish, for an example, when I was going through and testing that LCD, I wanted to make sure it wasn't me, because again, I'm not the best solder. You've all seen me solder if you if you've watched any of my videos. But you know, it's just making sure that I've validated that that it's not me, and then outline what I've gone through to get to the point where I think it's a bug. So I hope more people do that. Yeah, that being a tester is is a really difficult task in that sense because it's uh, you have to repeat the process several times and verify it. It's not an easy. Uh, I mean, it's 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 a pain in, in in the head for everybody that's trying to fix the bugs. So you have to try and remove as much load from right. them, right? Because they have to to understand what what's going on and fix it, and not chase a, a red herring, right? Speaking about Monkey <laughs> Island. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, well, what do you see in the future for, for your projects? Yeah, on my side, I've got really, um, I've got four big kind of time-consuming projects. Um, the first one is the MIDI pack that we talked about. Again, very mm -hmm. music-centric, uh, plug-and-play, drop it in there and play all the mod scene, you know, DOS music. Um, the second one that probably most people know about is the top 500. So taking um, all the lessons learned from the top 300 and expanding that collection to a full top 500 game list, um, community-driven. So there's a GitHub repo link where people have been adding their own games, and we definitely got up to 500. Um, the goal of that one is every single game in that pack works and is functional for the period and is functional and playable in the AO4D6 core. So anything that's Pentium era, like Quake, those are going to get dropped out. And anything that um, might run into the few bugs that we still have left in the core, um, you know, I'll drop those out. But to make sure that everything is tested, 500 games in the collection, you know, fully um, sourced by the community. So that's number two. Um, number three is a shareware pack. It's got a hundred games in it. It's all shareware. And again, back to my BBS days, you know, the way we shared games was shareware. It's, you know, freely available and mm -hmm. open. It might be the first three levels, but it, it gave you uh, the ability to experience those games, especially with limited bandwidth back in the day, 2400 baud modem. You really only wanted the first couple of levels. And so, um, yes. Two things, two points there is, number one, a, a, a sourced pack that is very, very small. So I'm trying to keep it under one gig. Same um, launcher interface, maybe a new launcher interface if we can get it done. Um, and then fully distributable. So it, it doesn't have MS-DOS in it. It's free DOS. Mm -hmm. It's at 100% open source and or shareware games so that there's no risk and in if people wanted to share it, go to town, you know, and it's, again, it's got a hundred DOS games that are fully playable. And last but not least is, mm -hmm. um, there was a foundational issue with the original top 300 and the way we generated, um, folder name structure. Um, it was auto generated. And if you picked five, let's say you picked four King's quest games and 
somebody created their own pack and I picked five King's Quest games, those folders could be different. And if you if you do that, then it's impossible to have a GitHub repo that fixes, you know, config issues yes. in INI. So we've standardized on that now. So every single game has the exact same static folder name, allowing us to centralize the GitHub fixes for those. So no matter anybody that creates a pack, if you go out and generate your own pack of your favorite games, but there's changes that we've found or I've found to fix those specific games, you can basically go run one Mr. Script and update your own pack, fix those games, and you're off to the races. So um, that one's been a bigger challenge than I thought. Um, but again, it sounds like yeah, it sounds like a huge challenge. We're, yeah, I can see how how it looked. Yeah, small. <laughs> it was again. It's like oh, I can get that done in a week. I'm a couple of months, three months into that now. So, <laughs> but those are mine. Uh, it's you know. Those are my my four big ones. That's that's a handful. <laughs> you you have quite enough for. I'm gonna. Quite re- a while. I joked about it. I'm gonna retire after those. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I feel the same with. I feel that uh, I'll I'll die before ending MD4E on all the platforms I wanted running. How about you, Joe? And uh, yeah. Well, uh, f- first, I'm just um, I'm trying not to laugh because of the people trying to get me to say things uh, with with my accent in the chat. <laughs> um, so, um, I I will I've got to say like you 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 were criticising your own soldering in in that video that you made, uh, <laughs> Flynn. To be honest, you did such a good job on that video that I keep seeing that video popping up in places I don't expect it to. So, um, oh. you know, people keep linking to that video saying, hey, just follow this guy. He, sh- he shows you how to make a, an MT32 pie. You don't need to buy one. Look at this guy. So it's it's like, I think he did a good job with the soldering. Um, I don't know how I can try and segue from soldering to routers, but hey, there you go. I said it. Or um, aluminum. Can you, <laughs> what is that metal? Oh, that's aluminium. The, the <laughs> aluminium Raspberry Pi case. There it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and in Spanish, we say aluminio. So oh. I'm on that side too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, um, uh, the, the the stuff I'm working on at the moment is um, mainly the networking stuff so that's that's more or less done now uh, for this mm-hmm. release although i'm trying to work up the uh, motivation to sit down and write an ftp server because it would be really good if we could just use the networking features of the pi to just get in and be able to write new sound fonts in there or change the config without having to touch the sd card um and also that would but that would allow a Mister update script to work as well. So, if the Pi was on the network, the Mister could then talk to the Pi over the network and send it new um, update updates from GitHub and stuff like that. So, I would like to do that. Um, there are obviously FTP is is older than me, um, so mm-hmm. so there are a lot of libraries out there for doing FTP. But the problem is they are usually based around Linux sockets, BSD sockets, mm-hmm. and um, and and porting porting them to Circle isn't quite like drop-in replacement kind of thing, so I, I will have to do some work for that. But I, I do want to do it because it, it would it would probably stop me from killing SD cards from swapping them so much, uh, which which would be mm. a bonus. Um, apart from that, 
there is so 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 Kitrinks has been working on this uh, SC fifty five uh, sound font, which is um, which is a tool that she's written that converts the original SC fifty five ROM into a sound font, literally just by analyzing all the data and. Um, she's got mm-hmm. this gigantic spreadsheet where she's worked out all of the different parameters of all the different instruments in the ROM. And um, it's gotten to the point where it's as good as it can be almost um, without actually, um, w- within the limitations of sound font, the standard. So now to get the rest of the SC55 um features we actually need to go and mod fluid synth and and break out of the 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 sound font standard we need to actually make some extensions to it so i'd like to try and help with that um once i work my way through this list um which would get us so much closer to to true sc55 um super excited about that one yeah that would be really cool it's already so far and it's already awesome but taking that yeah. to the next level. Yeah, it sounds amazing. A lot of work and she does she does amazing work. And uh and then as you combined I can't imagine what will come out of it. So thank you guys for, for doing that. And I, I when you were talking about this you got me thinking into what about uh MIDI scenes that take two MIDI inputs like the C C eighty eight Pro. Yeah, I, I have thought of that because when I got my own SC, SC88 Pro, I thought, um, what, what, like, how, how much of this could work on fluid synth? And um, I think the way it would have to work is, is probably, probably two instances of fluid synth or, or something. Mm. Um, I haven't really, yeah, I haven't really thought about that specific feature too much <laughs> but there are some things that have already been done so um for example the the 88 can let you remap any channel to be an additional drum channel so you can have more than just okay. channel 10 as the drum channel and some songs definitely do use that um so when I noticed one of these midis playing a random piano instead of a triangle, so like all the way through the song, there's just this dint, dint, dint noise. I thought there's something wrong here. I don't know what that is. I don't know why it's making that noise. And it turned out it was, it was it's because it was an SC88 midi, and there was some sysx at the mm. start that's supposed to set channel nine or something into an additional drum channel. So, um, so I implemented that in MT32Pi. And then a few months later, someone implemented that in Fluid Synth. So it's it's now part of Fluid Synth, and uh, I can remove that from MT32Pi. It's now part of the actual synth itself, rather than my front end. Um, and there's a couple of other things to do with the SC88 and, and the GS-specific um, MIDI stuff that you can do that's starting to make it into Fluid Synth. I think more people are realizing that uh fluid synth is 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 um being used in place of these synths so it should try and um and uh, and support some of these extra features so that's um that's something that's kind of being worked on if not if not by myself then by other people in in the general fluid synth project uh which is pretty cool you know that's that's quite a lot of, of things 
So, um, is, is there anything else you want to talk about? I'm curious. Um, have you had anybody use the MT32 Pi in an unexpected way? I, I know you can connect it to instruments too, right? Like, can um, mm. have you have people, you know, done something that you didn't expect that just worked? Yes, um, I've seen. I think it was Superduce from this server who ripped out the contents of, like, ripped out all the electronics from this Casio keyboard because uh, they thought the, the, the keyboard's electronics sounded terrible and replaced it with MT32 Pi. <laughs> so now he's got this um, Casio keyboard with MT32 Pi as the sound generator, um, That's which amazing. I thought was amazing. Yeah, and um, there's there's been... Pe so I, I, what I do every now and again is I go on YouTube and I search for MT32Pi and I sort from like most recent videos and uploads. And sometimes I just I just get blown away by what I see. Um, there's people in uh, Korea, uh, in South Korea, that have got this Mr. Community um, and they've opened up this MT32Pi section. So I, I have to stumble through all of this through Google Translate. But they've got like they've got these huge, huge group orders going on, and like people showing videos of all these games I've never even heard of, and I can't even understand or read because it's all in Korean and stuff. Playing on MT32 Pi, um, and it just blows my mind that people around the world are using this thing, and uh, it's it's crazy to me. Um, I see people building them into. Like it really interesting cases. So there's a Vogons thread about show us your custom MT32 Pi builds, and you've got everything from like 3D printed mini MT32s, which is which is like one of the most obvious ideas, but it's it's done so well by quite a lot of people. Um, to people saying, hey, I had this random television set top box and it was like taking up space in my garage so i ripped out the contents and i've turned that into an mt32 pi i've seen someone build one out of lego i've seen <laughs> <a> people <laughs> yeah I've, I've seen people doing live uh like music sessions like live jams with mt32 pi in their stack of gear um it's just ridiculous. I, 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 I can't even begin to encapsulate what all of seeing all of this makes me feel because to me, it's just me messing around with a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> like, it's just crazy how creative people are given the chance to mess around with this. So, uh, I love that because you could also just like plug it into your cell phone, right, through a MIDI port and a USB MIDI port and USB on the go play with it yeah you can and you can uh, uh the networking stuff i've been playing with um you, you yeah. can use uh apps on on android to connect to it that way and that works as well so you, you can play the mt32 pi with your phone um like all of this it might seem pointless but someone somewhere will find an amazing use for this and you just leave it to them and <laughs> you know I just write the code. I don't. I don't know how to use it in these crazy ways. I'll, I'll let other people work that out. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy seeing that. I love that Vogon's thread. I posted that in the uh, chat. It's oh. awesome to go through and see all the creativity there. Um, a lot of fun.
Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like uh, like a lot of fun. And those Korean things now now so those Korean games that are unknown to us, then uh, you you you'll probably have a lot of work with that, uh, Flinsbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I'm gonna need a translator sitting next to me. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine dealing with Korean setups of. Uh, drivers and uh, there's oh, a man. version of me <laughs> in korea that has already built some other interface and the, all the dos scripts and everything needed um it's just all in korean <laughs> i'm i don't know if that exists but i'm sure uh, hopefully hopefully that exists because there's so much things that we missed out and maybe there's amazing music there as well It's kind of yes. like the Japanese culture, right? We missed out on, at least I did, on some amazing games. You know, and again, not yeah. not MIDI specific, but again, Turbo Graphics, and we talked a little bit about mm -hmm. the collecting there and all the PC Engine stuff, and just the difference in game titles and and what we have available over there. You know, was a new world for me um, when I started collecting. Yeah, it's like we lost one third of the. Of the 16-bit generation, right. right? Yeah, we just didn't know about it. Now we have access to it, so it's really neat. Yeah, there's so much, and, and the PC88 and, and PC98 are platforms that have, have a ton of games, and how everything played together with the with DOS gaming, and there was some cross pollination across nations, and different threads that ended up being like Zelda or Dragon Quest that were spawned by by stuff in the US, right, or, or in Europe, and how everything slowly uh, changed across the world. But thanks to platforms like Mister, we now have access to, to, to these amazing implementations and, and your work that makes it accessible to people. So thank mm -hmm. you again. Well, it's, it's fun. Um, and again, I get, I get something out of it too. So it's the tinkering and the doing something that doesn't exist. So a lot of fun. Likewise, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that uh, that's all the, the themes that I wanted to cover. I don't know if uh, there's something else that uh, we should talk about. I mean, we could keep on talking about arcade platforms and the Archimedes and the Acorn and the Spectrum and the Amiga <laughs> and floppies and PCB repairs. But I, I believe that it's quite late for you, Dovefish, uh, there. And uh, we covered the main themes. So, how do you feel? Should we go on, or, or are we done here? I'm I'm happy to go on. Um, if you can give me like a, a two minute break to go and grab another beer, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's cool. I'm good to keep going yeah, sure. for a little bit. Obviously, it's it's only ten thirty for me on a Friday, so I'm good. Yeah, I'm good too. I, I have a, to be on a show later on, like in an hour, but I can be like here another hour without an issue. I don't think and, we should uh, do that. But yeah, push, sure. But let's let him get his beer and. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't yeah, think go so. For it. That that other show takes five hours, so it's gonna Oof. be a long day wow. for me. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well. Yeah, but I, I'm okay. Don't worry about it. So go for that. Yeah, beer. I'll I'll and, be right uh, back. Meanwhile, we can talk about arcade PCVs and, and your experience, man. Yeah, so um, I started collecting arcades in about 99. My first machine was actually a MAME machine um, that I built from the ground up, you know, and made the thousand mistakes that people make. I threw an X arcade 
stick in the as the control panel and then realized um, that I didn't want that and that it was crap. And so then I built my own control panel. And then you get into the rabbit hole of wanting all the controls. So, you know, spinner mm-hmm. control, um, four-way control, eight-way control, um, you know, obviously the trackball. And then that really sparked um, me going back to... So we had a huge arcade scene and you know when i was growing up that was kind of the other side so if i wasn't at home messing with my bbs i was at the arcade right that was the that was where Mm -hmm. you were and and um the ones that always stood out for me was obviously tron and the anything that had either custom controls or or something unique about the video so i i'm a big vector collector and I repair all my vector wow. monitors, and <laughs> so I've got Asteroids Deluxe, Star Wars, um, Asteroids Deluxe, Star Wars, and Tempest. Those are my three vectors uh, that I spend a, too much time repairing. <laughs> I, I'm so afraid of going into that, and I know that I won't go into that because maintaining vector scoop. I, I keep my my regular CRTs as as well as I can, but vector scopes that. Well, well, vector displays that really scares me, and uh, and I bet it, this, it would be impossible for me to the, get them. Yeah, so the the problem is that it's just so hard to find, right? Um, these days, you know, again, just like PCs or consoles or anything else, there was an era where they were nothing, and so I mm-hmm. lucked out. Number one, because I was in a point in my life where. I, I knew I wanted to collect some. And so, you know, arcades were dead. There were no arcades. Of course, there was no Mr. There was. Yeah, you're talking 2000 to 2010. Yeah, exactly. You right? just didn't have. It was either yeah. MAME and MAME for vectors and or those custom controlled mm-hmm. games like Tron were crap. Like, it's not the same experience at all. And so I started going to arcade auctions and you could get them for nothing. Um, you know, and when I say nothing, like literally fifty bucks for a working cabinet. You know, working That's internals. Yeah. My Asteroids Deluxe, I think I paid fifty bucks plus whatever the arcade fees were. And um, for for people that don't know what we are talking about, vector displays are CRTs that can plot. Uh, not in a raster. That is, when you have a regular CRT, it's it's drawn from the top to the bottom. And from left to right, each line at a time. And uh, the vector displays can draw any shape on the screen and have very different intensities. So you have very deep blacks against very, very bright and well-defined lines. Yeah, it's point-to-point point it lines. Amazing. And like the, and we've got yeah. the Vectrix, Vectrix console that does that. And then, of course, any oscilloscope is basically doing that. Yeah, I love my yeah. scopes. Yeah, so... <laughs> Um, it was intimidating at first, and then you know, again, if you've got that tinker spirit, like I'm okay, I'm gonna dive in, and this is broken. I can't make it any worse. So, um, you know, that's how I started um, the mm-hmm. process of you know, and of course, usually it really is. Everybody says do a cap kit, but you know, it usually is the capacitors that go out on any of the stuff, including. Mm-hmm. Even if you're doing motherboard repair, like on a 286 or a 386, it's again, it's going to be the capacitors most likely. And the power right. supply, yeah. for sure. And then, <laughs> you know, and then it's going to be battery damage. Those are usually the, mm-hmm. you know, everything that you spend your time repairing. So, 
it's it's impressive how resilient this old hardware is, right? Well, and it's so much easier to work on. Those boards are huge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, I joke about my soldering skills, but like on those, you could solder with a spoon and do okay. Yeah, but but please use proper tools because <laughs> yeah. it's very easy to <laughs> destroy to destroy it. a yeah, PCB. Yeah, an arcade PCB. You you are soldering on like. IRM or Konami pads, and, and you can blow them easily Very. if you are not controlling your temperature. Yeah. yeah, so that's how I got, in fact, that's how I got into a lot of my um, kind of hands-on skills, soldering irons and things like that, was just um, being forced into it as a arcade collector. So you got to have the room for it. That's I replaced amazing. it with, um, I was a server collector, you know, I was in IT. And so <laughs> I would get hand-me-down so, so, servers and I'd have server, you know, I had a server room at the house. And of course my wife. You, you had the Cal yeah, father? Yeah. Yeah. Lovely, lovely machines. And, oh boy. and then my <laughs> wife was like, you got to stop collecting these huge things. You know, we don't have any more closets and I switched to arcades. So it didn't quite oh yeah that's that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> didn't quite go the same direction <laughs> anyway oh, no. she was she's excited about the mister because i'm slowly selling off some of my collection because it truly is replacing you know yeah that small box replaces sure all does. those big boxes yeah. good good <laughs> <laughs> and and you are into uh classic computers right uh though fish yeah that's right uh um, I have a fairly decent Amiga collection. Uh, so one of my one of my most prized computers is an Amiga four thousand, and um, it has it has all the the most rare and expensive add-ons you can think of. Uh, it, it's it's crazy. So I, I didn't um, I didn't pay much for these back when I got them, but now you look at the eBay prices and it's terrifying. Like maybe. Wow. If, if if I need to, you know, buy a house or something, I've got a good deposit right there in that Amiga 4000. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Really? I, I have my Amiga 4000 next to me here on the floor. And it, it was a gift from a dear friend. We used to play this when, when we were younger. And um, he simply moved on and said, I'm, I'm done with Winua. The, the emulator is, is good for me. You can have it. So I, I think a lot of Amiga people are like that. They just give each other bits and pieces. Um, when when the hardware stays within the community, it's 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 quite nice as well. Um, yeah. But I, I'm quite lucky. I've got my uh, in my Amiga 4000. I've got this um, Cyberstorm 060 with the Power PC. So that was that was when mm. they they tried to kind of branch mm -hmm. off of the 68k and, and add the power pc into to give the machine a new lease of life and run more modern programs in the in the mid 90s and um it also has this thing called the g-rex i'm not sure if you've heard of that but it's a card no yeah it's it, it's a card that replaces the um the zorro slots in the amiga 4000 and um because on the amiga 4000 you've, you've got these slots and um, mm -hmm. It's kind of split in half. Like one half is the actual Zorro slots that are Amiga native card slots, and just next to them, you've got all these empty ISA slots, which are literally the same as PC ISA slots. But to use those, you usually have to install a bridge board, which um, which would give you half a PC on a card, like a, a four eight six PC on a card. 
And then you could use those slots to put graphics cards, sound cards for the PC side in. Um, but if you don't use those, you could get this thing called a G-Rex and it would give you PCI cards for the Amiga. So hmm. you had wow. the ability to plug in like a Voodoo 3 <laughs> to oh, the Amiga wow. and a Sound Blaster Live and, and a network card and everything. And it really sort of um, turned the old Amiga into like an almost modern PC, uh, like in terms of like ninth, late late 90s spec. Um, and yeah, I have one of those. It's quite, it's quite weird playing Quake 2 in 3D <laughs> on, on an Amiga, but it is possible. And like you do it once and you're like, wow, this is crazy. But then you realize that playing Quake 2 is just so much better even on a Raspberry Pi these days. So it's all kind of academic <laughs> yeah. really, but... Yeah, it's an interesting machine. But it's fun, yeah. So how does that compare? So the speed of that, what is it? The Is it the Vampire, Vampire, the FPGA-based one? Um, hmm. From a speed perspective compared to what you have there, Dope? Um, Do I'm going to guess that the Vampire is probably faster. Um, I don't know that much about the Vampires. I don't have one, but I think they kind of did it in a kind of inside out way where the vampire is is doing everything and the amiga is just sort of like being uh being a, a little bored to, to put it on <laughs> um <laughs> it's it's a really interesting project and they've done some crazy work with it I, I think they've like invented their own set of extra cpu instructions for it and everything they've, they've created this um 68080 in 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 quotes i think um I don't know much about it though. It's meant to be very, very fast though. It's yeah, it's that's pretty crazy. Everything I see is just it's all about speed. Um, so I'm just curious about that. I don't own I don't own a single Amiga. So I went out and looked today, and I think I saw the it was like the 600s <laughs> on eBay were like it was over 600. dollars I'm like, okay, nope. You know, that's wow. I'm out. You know, something that doesn't say non-working. Um, I blame all the YouTubers and everybody who who posts original hardware like Phil's Phil's labs. Like anytime he posts a video, I mean, I think that's where the prices of voodoo cards went up. Like any of anything that he posts, if you didn't get to it before he posts it, the price skyrockets. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It probably it gets aggravated, but by that kind of thing. But in reality, there's also the fact that this stuff yeah, is there's old. not a whole this lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. There's not a lot of it. And besides that, uh, the people that want it have the the economic power to get it. So. Right. Yeah, you've got people who grew yeah. up with it, didn't have any money. I was thinking about when Dopefish was going through his MIDI stack of the real hardware that he had, mm. you named at least three devices. And I was thinking, okay, what would that have cost in you know 1990 when it came out? Back yourself up. No, yeah. impossible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, and 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 today because sure. most probably Dovefish got them uh, as I did years ago and they were really cheap uh, as opposed to today you no know? uh, I remember paying like $45 for my MT32 that's or, impossible these days I mean you can get it with the MT32 yeah. pie now you know it'd probably cost you about 40 yeah. bucks and that's good but don't try and get a real one <laughs> it's not worth it yeah and and, and it's uh, like three years of difference right for for that price escalation i for some reason i think again the pandemic 
paused people yeah. sitting at home like me and everybody else probably listening to this, we're like, okay, I want to do that thing that I wanted to do back then. And I have a little, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sitting around, so I'm going to collect arcades or I'm going to build up a mystery. I'm going to build up a, a new 486, you know, from the ground up. And you'd probably spend a little more money on that than you used to. Even PC parts, right? Like I built my yeah. my PC, I luckily built kind of right before the pandemic. Um, and what's funny about it is what dr- drove me to build this was I was generating the top 300 packs and it was taking like an hour just from a disc and processor perspective to build those packs. And I was mm-hmm. like, I, c- I could save so much more time if I just built a machine. So I did yes. and I got it right, right at the tail end. And of course now it, I wouldn't, I would suggest no one buy any hardware. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It, it went crazy, yeah. completely crazy. Just uh, as you say, during the, during the pandemic, it went worse. I think you got a lot of collectors and, uh, sitting out there going, I'm going to buy an MT32 or something. Anyway, you know, I, I've I've had people come and tell me, um, "Hey, this this MT32 Pi thing is pretty cool." Like, I actually went and sold my real MT32 because it's just taking up room, and I needed the cash, and this is fine as a replacement. And I was just like, "Okay, then, like that's <laughs> that's good, I suppose." Um, <laughs> So I I don't know maybe there's a few more MT32s on eBay now that than there were before this existed. <laughs> um, yeah, but it also brings uh, brings it to the to the back of the people's minds. It, it happened with with everything, right? When the mini consoles for like the NES, the NES came out, people thought that they would be. Uh, but but when it just sells, people buy it. So it kind of balances out because there's people looking like when we change console generations and uh, prices for the old console uh, go down and you can buy a lot of good games for very cheap when the when the generation changes. Well, it used to be that way. Yeah. yeah it's weird. It's weird. I sold off some of my most more obscure consoles again because of Mr. You know, it's completely playable and in a better video format and just you know better all the way around so like my neo geo aes that went out the door as soon as Mm. i figured out you know that it was um just much more convenient and really accurate so i still collect a few but yeah things like that have definitely driven down the hardware collection that's good it's it's um uh wise thing to do I've, i've not done it because you you end up justifying things like, no, I need the ten Super NES consoles because I need to measure them for every single case mm-hmm. that pops up, right? Yeah, in that particular instance, and, uh, you need it as a comparison, but yeah, but but you don't need it. You say you do. I don't need my <laughs> arcade machines anymore, but I'm definitely not getting rid of. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that part as well. These are part of me, and they they are taking them of my cold right, pants, exactly. right? <laughs> Those are bolted. <laughs> uh, the the arcade is is so much fun and so much work. So I saw the chat earlier. I am all in on a Mister BBS. Um, I'm gonna definitely add that to my list because again, I was a operator. I had two lines for 
10 years. Um, so um, I think that would be a lot of fun to have a, a Mr. Based, <laughs> even have it built into the pack where you could hit one button and be, be on the Mr. BBS. So that would be a lot of fun. Sentient says that she wants to be the co-host. Hey, there, I'm in. <laughs> yeah. It'd be so much fun. Hosted on a yeah, Mr. And, uh, even. Right? No no oh, reason yeah. that can't happen. So Yeah, serial ports and modems. Yeah. Be pretty en energy efficient as well. So <laughs> yeah. it wouldn't cost as much as a real Oh a lot better than the machine that I would actually host it on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, imagine that. And uh, Dopefish, uh, I read on your on your site that you're doing a PhD in computer science and game technology. How's that going? It's um, yeah, it's it's that's that's true. I it's been a bit weird for the last year because um, it's very hard. I, I can't. I haven't been able to go into the university at all. And um, one of the things about doing something like a PhD is that. Um, you really rely on being able to to talk to people and and collaborate with people because there are a lot of other researchers in my group that are doing similar things and um it's been very difficult to work without that going on um but yeah i mean basically what my work is is we're, we're trying to um we're trying to research ways to use the cloud for gaming in in more efficient ways because we've we've got all this new cloud technology and there are there are things like google stadia and you know microsoft cloud and stuff that let you stream games over the internet um mm -hmm. but a lot of the games that are running on these platforms they don't actually utilize the clouds very efficiently they're just the same game engines that are running on your local pc but just video streamed over mm -hmm. a network link so they're still constrained by the same um, uh, limitations of a single machine. So what my research is about is is, is looking at ways to distribute physics engines over, over cloud instances. So if you could imagine uh, a physics engine in a game, it could be any kind of game, like a, a, a big open world FPS or... Um, you know, any anything with, with thousands of objects in it and you can destroy these objects and they can all bounce off each other or interact with each other. If, if you're running that simulation on a single machine, you're limited to the CPU power or the GPU power of that one machine. So if you can distribute that over several cloud instances and scale that up and down, um, then you'd be able to create much more vast environments in, in video games. And some work has been done yeah. with that. And what my work focuses on is is the load balancing and the scaling part of that. So um, my one of my colleagues actually did the implementation of a physics engine that can work over the network without any janky, you know, latency-related glitches. And, um, and But I, I was going to ask about that. How do you split? Because one of the biggest issues for paralyzing uh, stuff is subdividing the things. So... What is the the paradigm that you are selecting for? Uh, you're like localizing physics to specific areas, or are you just uh, separating layers of physics into different uh, instances? It's it's really simple at the moment. We're just doing uh, spatial partitioning. So 
um, you're literally just splitting the world up into into mm. like a grid mm. or into. So it's locally. Okay. Yeah. So it's ge it's geographical uh, partitions, mm -hmm. and then each server is assigned to 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 manage a certain partition. Um, but the magic is so there is there is some stuff out there that does this. Um, I think there are some like commercial solutions that do this, and they have overlapping boundaries where when the objects cross mm -hmm. the boundary, they they collides exactly. with each other over the network and the collisions are done over the network but when you see if you could imagine like a pyramid where there's loads of cubes stacked on top of each other and it's cro it, the the pyramid is sort of straddling the boundary um and then you just throw a huge object into the middle of that pyramid to try and break it up you kind of see all these like weird um artifacts where the the objects are very unstable because of the network latency that's you know introduced be in, into the simulation so mm -hmm. to avoid that we've done it a different way where the boundaries don't overlap and what happens instead is when objects get close to the boundary you send a like an an area of influence a, 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 like an area bigger than the object over the network and if it's going if it's likely to hit something on the other side then you move that object onto the other server and it simulates it with its own objects together so that you don't get any of the network latency being introduced there. It just, it, it gets transferred instantaneously and then that one server manages the collision. So it's almost as good as seamless. That That's uh, impressive because I, I would imagine that when, when you have shared memory and want to pass uh, weight uh, well, I'm guessing that all these simultaneous processors have the same specs. Otherwise, it would be really hard, right? Like to synchronize the stuff and uh, share the data between the two instances. But I'm guessing that you s you're sending minimal data when that happens, right? So it doesn't block the other processes that are running simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. So e each server is its own independent simulation with its own time step and everything. So it could run on a slower or a faster CPU. That doesn't really matter so much. Um, and because the data we send is is very, very minimal. Um, it could, it could awesome. vary depending on what the game wants to do. So maybe the game needs to attach more um, like metadata about the object with the object as it passes from one server to another. But, uh, you know, it's still kind of early days of research, so we're not really considering mm -hmm. that kind of thing yet. But, uh, yeah, what, what I'm focusing on is, is ways to um, dynamically scale the simulation. So it could start off with one server, and then as things get more, you know, complex, it could get partitioned in real time, and then more more yes. Docker containers or servers could be spun up in the cloud, and then more simulations could be started and some of the workload shared. So it's it's quite a tricky problem. Um, it's it's taken over my life and I need to kind of balance this with uh, <laughs> with the MIDI, <laughs> completely unrelated MIDI stuff that I've just happened to do. <laughs> yeah. And, and and from the outside, people think like, you are, you are uh, taking a break from computers with computers, but but it's so much different from the inside, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's it's got absolutely nothing to do with my day to day work. So uh, <laughs> it's like 
yeah, it's like a whole different thing. Even if I am just switching desktops and and changing what text editor I use, you know, um, uh, it, it feels good. It feels good to just close those windows, right? Yeah, I, I did an internship the other day, um, the other month, sorry, and uh, and it was literally end of the workday because of working remotely. It, it's just turn the VPN off and then open a different Firefox tab. And, and <laughs> do other stuff. Uh, it's been really strange during. But it feels refreshing, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Re- it is refreshing when you can do that. And and when you get off, I don't know if anyone else does this. You know, when you get off a long Zoom call, and you just sort of throw yourself back in your chair, and you're like, oh god. Like, <laughs> I don't know if it's. Too- <laughs> and, and you just like, like move to the same screen, but it feels different because you are off that one. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I no longer have the headphones clamped to my head. I, I know people aren't listening to me now. I can, I can chill out for a few minutes. <laughs> I'm just yeah. glad my hobbies don't inter, you know, intertwine with my real job. Um, I couldn't do it yeah. if you know, if those mixed. Um, when the hobbies become work, you've you've destroyed them. I spend all my day talking about you know um, clouds and um, whether you know our customers where they're using them or not. So um, I don't want to do that when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so you don't want to do a cloud, Mister um, uh, Cloud. That shares all no no hosted oh. Azure anything please <laughs> <laughs> no I'd much rather host it on a Mister thank you <laughs> yeah I I I'm completely agree that's that's good that's good uh policy mm-hmm. in general and and it's very good that we can have these kind of hobbies and, and a responsive community that that encourages the 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 results it's it's very um. I don't know. It's refreshing. It's also uh, uplifting to to see your work being used, right? Yeah, it's fun. You know, sometimes you go into this thinking, you know, you're kind of. Um, we always joked that there were, you know, maybe six of us using the AO four eighty six core total. <laughs> um, there's dozens of us, right? <laughs> That's kind of the joke, but um, seeing people <laughs> enjoy it, and you know, you you start seeing more and more people interact and you know people are using it and 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 you know having fun with it so um it's an escape for me um that's all the mr cores i love seeing the new cores drop that's one thing that i absolutely do is i download the latest cores whatever it is pull down the images and anything that exists for it and just kind of play um i think it's so fun to see new things drop on there um i love that and it happens seems like it happens every week so yes it's an yes. escape for me um it's fun but but also uh some some things look to be so uh, daunting or 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 huge like the a- aos a46 and uh, your work makes it accessible and, and that's that's amazing because it, it takes off a huge huge impossible load for imagine somebody that just downloads a core and then has to install from the operating system and, and install their stuff. It's Yeah, I think that's the difference right? when there's another layer, right? Like if you're downloading, mm-hmm. you know, a TurboGrafx-16 ROM, you drop the ROM on there and there you are playing. When there's any mm-hmm. of the computer cores, when there's an OS, um, 
you know, you're relying on the internet or your past experience with those platforms to get it up to speed where people can enjoy it because they are fun, but there's definitely a learning curve. Um, so I even run into it today. You know, some of the, I didn't grow up with like the Atari ST or again, the Amiga. So mm. dropping in there and kind of at least having a base, um, to be able to play some of the fun games, it's, it's a blast. Yeah, you need some familiarity, right? You feel like your hands are tied. Right, with that extra layer. When you layer. change an OS. Yeah. But it's fun getting the, to learn how to, to deal with it. It's something that people with, with, that work in, in IT can relate to easily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I myself, I, I, I know how to set up um, a 486 and do the DOS stuff and install all the drivers and change all my config sys and auto exec bat and everything but sometimes you just want to play the games and uh, like none mm -hmm. of this matters and Flynn's, Flynn's pack is there and it just makes everything so much easier and that's something I really appreciate because I can't be bothered to do this kind of stuff anymore. <laughs> um, I've done it a few times yeah. and now I just, I just want to try and get through some of these games play. in a very limited time I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Like the first times you do it. Like I, I did, I went through the same process with the X68000. I got mine like six years or seven years ago and it was fun uh, building your own environments and having everything. But after that, you just want to, to clone that, right? And never deal with it again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think we've got a few people agreeing with that in the chat as well. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm It's reading. a labor of love, but it's fun. Um, just don't try and do 7,000. You know, 300, 500. <laughs> those are much more reasonable. <laughs> I was so, um, yeah, completely out of it. Way too much gen. So I'm, I'm back. I got my feet on the ground again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that you think, like, on a weekend, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> I can record this. Let me just throw this together. <laughs> But it happens even with, with when making a YouTube video, as you have the experience, you you think it's it's gonna be like one hour, and yeah, then <laughs> those take a day. And I'm a self critic, and so I've joked about it in the Discord. I say um a lot. It's my kind of my break. That's my mm. thinking word, and it drives me crazy <laughs> when I'm rewatching the videos before. No, I no, post it. never yeah. watch yourself. I, just, I, I never. Um, I won't listen to this recording again because I'll be counting the ums. And don't none of you that are listening, you better not count them. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's something. Uh, I rather do live streams because of that because I can't go and change yeah, the thing. It it it's hours of work just to try and make it you know, a little bit professional. I don't care. Like, I, I don't care, like, how many subscribers. It Really, I'm just throwing it out there to try and um, help somebody who was going through the same challenges that I was make it easier on them. That's the point. But, you know, again, mm -hmm. um, you're your worst critic, usually. Yeah. Yeah, it, it helps. But it, it could be your own enemy if you do that. Right. Yeah, I, I, I struggle sometimes with the... Um, the the perfect being the enemy of the good and everything uh, there's that saying and uh 
you know, sometimes I just, I should really just release it. You just know, release it's fine. It, yep. it works. Yes. <laughs> That, that's that's how it ends up working, you know, because uh, there are some things that I just keep for months and, and I don't release. And then somebody asks for it and you release it in the state that it was because they need it. And you end up doing it like six months later and didn't change it so, yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't perfect. And that's not good. Well, and if I would have taken that approach with the top 300, that pack wouldn't be out still because there's still broken games yeah. in it but having the ability to iterate on it was huge and it's like okay there's going to be 56 games that are broken in in the top 300 packs it's not really a top 300 <laughs> um but slowly working through those and being able to iterate on them has been good yes it's, it's um it's hard to to draw that line but when whenever if somebody that's listening to this is struggling with that just get it to a point where i don't know 70% is good for you. you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to put a number, but enough. It's, and you can iterate. As, as we live in an era with, with, where we can iterate, right? Not the best for when you're patching, downloading game patches, but right. <laughs> with this kind of thing, it's, it's, it's a must, yep. right? Well, and getting in people's hands, I, I, I think both of our projects, both the packs mm -hmm. and MT32Pi, before you kind of hand it to somebody you don't know the way people are going to use it or or what they're going to run into and i'm i'm sure um dopefish runs into the same thing it's like oh right yeah that absolutely needs to be there and would have never thought about it until somebody actually tried it so yes that's right yeah, the, the the best um the best outstanding bug at the moment with mt32pi is that it doesn't work at all on, on the one gigabyte Raspberry Pi 4, you know, the one that no one has, mm. the, the one that no one wants because it's the one gig. You, you've got to have the two or the four or the eight. You can't have the one gig. That's too... The cheap that's, one. That's the cheap <laughs> one. So, so, no, so no one has that one. No one's tested that one. I haven't tested that one. And then I, eventually I got one and it doesn't work. So, um, <laughs> so I've already fixed it, but no one's noticed. But now you know, so you probably do. You probably will notice now. <laughs> but, oh, um, I'd never be caught dead with a one gig Pi Four. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically a Raspberry Pi Three. I don't, I don't know what the point of that is. Uh, Raspberries are amazing. I have a, a few here at home that uh, that I've used for several things. Uh, one is monitoring the the doorbell because we have like two doorbells. Mm -hmm. And I wanted my uh, to be notified on the phone because I'm if I'm listening to music at high volume of playing, uh, I, I want something to vibrate and listen. There's a doorbell, and uh, I have one like doing a Fourier transform every five seconds and analyzing for for each ringtone, and uh, and send it and not send a, a message when the this washer is on or whatever because they are similar in, in frequency response. So that prompted md for you wow. really oh wow and uh because i had that cut running right for years <laughs> i said it was like okay they want me to check how the system sounds if it's different i think i can do that on a week i'll do it right now and well you know that story another one i have it controlling the arcade pcv storage room and uh it, it has one, two of those uh, humidity and temperature sensors. And uh, I just hacked a, a 75 series TTL to 
to turn on and off a dehumidifier system. Oh, wow. And log that to a database and plot the the humidity and, and, and temperature for that room. So I don't bother because it, it was a pain to just keep the, the PCBs in, in a good storage and, and and I didn't have the money. So Raspberry Pi it is. They're awesome. You know, it keeps it keeps surprising me just how um how people use Raspberry Pi. Because like within emulation communities, I've noticed there's 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 a sort of sentiment of the Raspberry Pi now being the you know the the ugly stepchild of emulation now that we've got FPGAs and and fancy things and we don't need mm-hmm. Raspberry Pis to 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 do emulation anymore. But what you've got to remember is that this this is a, a computer that was meant to be for school kids for education right and Mm. to be the cheapest possible thing um that you could get with a reasonable amount of cpu power and a reasonable amount of ram and it just does enough to to be useful within its price range and yet we've still managed to pull off some pretty crazy things with the raspberry pi that should never have been possible so um, I don't know. Like some, I see quite a lot of hate for the Raspberry Pi on Twitter, and I just do not understand it. It's it's like, wow! Like you've got to you've got to remember this. Is, it's meant to be a cheap computer. Like it's it's just okay at everything. It's not amazing at everything. It's just all right. You know, <laughs> it's just yeah. But but when when you saw those magazines that packed a Raspberry Pi for the price of a magazine, that's uh... Uh, you know, coming from being, uh, I, I, I studied university or college at, uh, during the 90s. And my dream was having a Linux PC that I could just store in my car instead of my car stereo and play those new MP3s, right? And, uh, well, that that's available for 5 USD right now, right? Yeah. It's impressive. The price to processing power, it's just, it's still hard to beat. Um, even and, back and when it you just know, came if you... out, it was, you know. And then the com- the community that embraced it, you know, all the different Raspberry Pis, Im- images. Like for me, I run, I've got a Domitic server that's running on my home automation. That's on a Pi. My Ubiquity network routers and all that, it's on a Pi. So like it's so versatile because of the community and people creating all kinds of things. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's since it's so versatile, it it's no wonder it ended up as an emulation box. I, I understand both sides of the, of the story because you can just like use an old PC and it will outpower the Raspberry right. Pi, right? But it's not like people know how to tinker with that. And uh, Raspberry Pi is just like clone this SD card and you're yep. done. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, so that's why it's popular. I I understand that you could just like grab a 2010 computer and it'll beat the Raspberry Pi at emulation. In in many case scenarios, not all of them, but yeah. But the thing is. Who can rebuild a 2010 PC and set it up? It's it's way less people that than the people that can just clone Raspberry Pi and repair cards. the battery damage that has occurred on the yeah. motherboard. <laughs> motherboard. 
and, and yeah, and change those capacitors right. on the power supply. Or you Find can buy it to burn the CD to install the OS because <laughs> yeah. your oh current PC yeah. doesn't have one and I'm... you can't burn the CD. Yeah, we we have like the the floppy interface for five inch discs here sitting on the desk and tons of CD drives, but that's not the common people, mm. right? Yeah, I, th I think the best part about the Pi is is not so much its spec or its price but the fact that every single one of us it, like listening probably has one has one yep there's there's, there's probably yeah. one somewhere in in your house um or maybe you owned one or maybe you've just used one through 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 other things uh, a media server whatever right yeah absolutely an mt32 you know Everyone right, yeah. on this should have <laughs> should have one, right? It's sitting right next to their mister. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Some it's, people are like, uh, you know, I've upgraded to the mister for emulation, so I've, I've now re I've upcycled my old Raspberry Pi as a sound card. Yeah, <laughs> as the, the sidecar for the mister. Yeah, yeah, I do quite like that. But the, the fact that it's so popular means that it's there's thousands of eyes on it and it's well understood and there are so many of them out there and it's it's not going anywhere. You can, at least in the UK, you can walk down to the shop in the high street and get one if you want. It's it's so easy to get one. Um, it's There are probably better things out there than the Raspberry Pi in the same form factor with for a similar price. Like there's all this, like these banana pies and things like that. Mm. Um, but you just don't know who's making these things, and the community around the Raspberry Pi is so massive that you know that the software support is going to be there for a very long time. So I don't know. Like for for all uh, it's it's for all its flaws, it's standardized. And it's uh, easy to find. It's just like Arduino. We we chose Arduino when we made the CPS2, the suicide project, because it was so cheap and easy to, to grab everywhere, right? Same is with the Pi. Yeah. Yeah, and like, like a couple of people have mentioned in the chat, like you, you can find all sorts of different uses for older Pis. I've still got, I've still got my original 2012 Pi, um, which is the very slow single sort single core seven hundred megahertz thing, um, as as the pi, as a pie hole, which is like a, a network level mm -hmm. ad blocker, mm. and it works. It works fine. It, I don't need anything more powerful than that. It's um, it does the job, and they're they're very very cheap, especially second hand as well. And if they die, you can substitute either the SD card or the Pi easily. Yeah. And and I know this because I've killed a few. <laughs> yeah. A few pies have died in the making of NT32 pie because yeah. stop uh, bridging the five volt rail on the GPIO. <laughs> oh man, I've I've done that twice now. Um, <laughs> oh, I have to. Boy. It's, it's so too close. So, yeah, for for context, if anyone's listening um, and and wondering what we're on about, the. The the three point three volt um, is pin is right next to the five volt pin, and if you short the three point three volt to the five volt, because you're poking it with a multimeter or something, uh, or you're trying to attach a wire and it slips or something like that, the Pi is now dead. That's it. It's over. Like instantly dead, and it will never boot up again. And you'll plug it in and you'll get a light, but it'll not do anything. 
Um, and I've done that twice. <laughs> and it's really annoying. <laughs> and and when you do that on Arcade PCV Repair, you, you can patch the, the trace or, or replace the TTL or hopefully it's not a custom. But on the, on the so Pi, small. it's... it's uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like the Mister, or specifically the DE ten nano, right? You do something wrong there, boy. Yeah, it's a was a hundred and forty dollar mistake, and now it's a what hundred and seventy dollar mistake. So, yeah. Ouch. My favorite use of the Pi in my house currently is my in my arcade. I've got a TV that comes on. It's a CRTV, and it's got a Pi two, I think, on it, and it has all the MTV videos. Um, and the commercials and Beavis and Butthead and Aeon Flux. And then those just play on repeat. And it's just a Pi with a simple Python script running. We talked about it in the Discord, but so much fun to have that, you know, pull it down from archive and, and you're off to the races. So nice. Yeah, but that, that's amazing. It's a really good use. I had one with, uh, for, for streaming my, my FLAC mm. files, and it was the client. I have still have that one, the the door ring uh, one. I have one like my NAS, uh, quote unquote server is one Raspberry Pi as well, and also I have another one that uh, I mounted. I my my solar panels had this um, this module to register how much uh, energy was being produced, but it was uh, closed sourced and connected to their servers. So I had to reverse engineer the protocol and implemented it on the Pi and have it locally. And now they're out of business and uh, I can still have my logs. And the Raspberry Pi saved me, spurred me that issue. Nice. That's cool. <laughs> All right, Dope, we're going to let you go to sleep. <laughs> well... Oh yeah, it's like five thirty <laughs> there, right, or something. You, you know, when it gets to the point where you've been up so long, it, it's sort of like, well, what's the point in going to sleep? I might as well just have breakfast Stay or up. something, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Uh, we'll have to do it next time. We can do something on UK time for the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, we we chose this time, but <laughs> it was what what worked best for the occasion. I mean, th does it sound like I'm upset by this? The hell no, 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 I, this no, was, no, this you're good. no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm usually all. up this late on a Friday anyway, because if, if it wasn't um, if it wasn't this, I'd just be playing video games. So this this was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. I, I'm very very grateful for you inviting me, and uh, and and it's been a lot of fun reading all the comments as well. Yeah, I agreed. Um, this is a perfect Friday for me, being able to talk, Mister, and all this, uh, all this fun stuff we do. So, appreciate everybody coming together. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to send the C6 to my MT32 because I changed the environment and don't have the DOS box. Let me, maybe I have it set up. No, I, I don't. No, yes, I, I have to. Uh, no, I don't have it set up. Mm. This is just MIDI problems, you know, just <laughs> standard. This is how yeah. it goes, right? <laughs> yeah, because improvising it is, is not a good idea. TMIDI doesn't send CSX as a standalone file, right? It has to be grabbed inside, inside a MIDI. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think you can, you can send SYX files. Uh, let me check if I can... 
Yeah, I can do that. And if it works, okay. Yeah, convert it to MIDI. And send in the CSX. Yeah, received. Good. Yeah, sent. Okay, so thanks everybody for uh, being around here. Also, thanks a lot to both of you for your work and for your time doing this. Uh, Flinspeed, Dopeish, uh, it we had a great time. Thank you very much for your work and for your Thank time. Thank you for hosting us again. Um, you did an awesome job. It's so fun to hear you moderate. And it was fun last time. It was fun this time too. So really do appreciate it. No. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I second exactly what Flynn said. It's been an absolute blast. And, um, you know, it, it really doesn't matter at all to me what time it is. This, it was it was 100%, 110% worth it. So, um, yeah, I'd be happy to do this again anytime. A lot of fun. Awesome. Well, uh, let me try and, and check if this works. Take care. I'm Good off. night, everybody. Bye. Good night, everyone. Thank you.